The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media. You people, you know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. This is where the big boys play, huh? Look at the adjective. Play. Go at it live on WCW Monday Nitro, where the big boys play every Monday night at 8 on TNT. Hello and welcome to Nitro Nights, a WCW Look Back podcast proudly brought to you by the SJP World Media Network. My name is Sai, and joining me as always on Pay-Per-View Day, we bloody love Pay-Per-View Day, is the wrestling encyclopedia himself, Scottish Danny. How are we doing, sir? Very, very well, mate. Um, How's yourself? Very good, very good. Looking forward to this because we're going to do things slightly different for this episode of Nitro Lights. It's pay per view day, as we mentioned. Four Brawl 1996 is the show we are looking at. But for the first time in our well year and a bit run, our 60, what, what would this be? 68, 69, episode 70, maybe even. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, for the first time ever on Nitro Nights, it is not just Danny's dulcet tones and my croaky voice you will be hearing. We have a guest, and I'm over the moon to be welcoming on to Nitro Nights, Steve O, as in Total Steve O from Twitter and the Total Steve O podcast. How are we doing, my friend? Uh, yeah, I'm. Hello, everybody. Hello, Sai. Hello, Danny. I have been waiting, as I said, to Sai off air in in our world, real time, about two weeks to talk about this because I've got a surprise for these two individuals that they have no idea about at all. And oh, um, okay. this could be going on for a while, this episode, but I cannot wait to get into it. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> just just you know for clarification i want to be able to get to bed at a decent time tonight okay so <laughs> <laughs> a surprise interesting that is well hearing there is a surprise is a surprise never mind what's coming i will look forward to that but yes today we are looking at fall brawl 96 war games and all that stuff this show first aired on the 15th of September, 1996, and it aired from Winston-Salem in North Carolina. So we are very much in old school Jim Crockett promotions for Horseman country. Uh, the attendance that day was just a smidge over 11,000 people, uh, taking $153,000 on the live gate. Uh, pay-per-view buys equated to just a touch over 1.6 million dollars as well so all the numbers and uh, facts and so on are heading in the right direction for wcw at this time doesn't not quite hit in the heights that we see in 97 and 98 as yet 
but much, much better than where they were in 1995. So, Steve-O, I'll come to you first of all, before we run into anything else. Let's get a little bit of a background with regards to yourself and WCW and so on. Now, from conversations you and I have had uh, away from the microphones, so to speak, I know you've not seen a great deal of WCW, or at least what you have seen you're not a big fan of. But yet you you listen to Nitro Nights pretty much or well, most weeks and so on, and and you tell me you're enjoying the show and and so on. So it's really interesting to me getting your first hand reaction to this pay per view first of all. But with regards to WCW itself, what you've seen, what you know, what what you think, uh, and and so on. What are your thoughts on on WWE as a company and what you know of it and and so on? I know you were very much a WWE guy as opposed to a WCW guy, weren't you? Yeah, so when it comes to WCW, I physically cannot watch it. I hate it. I absolutely detest it. Brilliant. Um, Okay, join us next week on Night for Night. (laughs) (laughs) I've had the um, the misfortune of uh, being uh, asked to come on as a guest for Unbooking the Territory to cover WCW, and I absolutely hated it. Any time I've attempted to go on the WWE network and watch some WCW that someone's recommended. I have to turn off after about eight seconds because you've just said it. I'm a WWE Mark. I'm all about, uh, the likes of JR, the King, the rock stone cold and so on and so forth. I'm just pure WWE. And it's like these brilliant podcasts we listen to. And let's just use chain wrestling as the prime example. The WWE has been marketed to people like me. And the episode that I did with Matt Lewis for SummerSlam, he basically summed me up and said, you're just a casual fan. There's nothing wrong with that, but you're a casual fan. And for me, wrestling is just WWE. Anything that's not WWE, I just think, eh, rubbish. It's not clean. It's not, um, it's not, um, I can't, I can't, I can't express myself, but it's, um, it just doesn't, look right for me yeah because of the way it's presented to me um and trust me um my opinion has changed shall we say um and this for anybody that has no idea what i was doing for my own personal podcast i um regrettably took up a challenge i suppose of uh watching through 2011 WWE and the first six months from Royal Rumble up to Money in the Bank is some of the worst wrestling I have ever seen in my life. I absolutely detested it. Um, It was almost like pulling out my eyes. So when someone like me is asked to come on this fantastic show and review something, which is from 1996, this has got to be the most refreshing thing I've ever seen. And I'll be honest with you, sign Danny. Uh, my first note that I've actually written down about this pay-per-view is I'm already more invested after 57 seconds of this pay-per-view than anything to do with 2011. Wow. wow. Okay. 
Interesting. Because because it comes across as real. Mm -hmm. It's all I want. I I, I just want to see something that's real. I hate being patronised and you guys have come on my show and use the terminology. It's a pantomime. Mm. This isn't, this is real. Mm. And I bloody loved it. It's it's funny you mentioned the, the realism of it. Uh, it's quite a famous quote, I suppose, from Eric Bischoff himself. He talks about it so many times on his own podcast and in if he's a guest anywhere else. And you always get the standard questions, I suppose, when people interview um, certain people of a certain stature in the wrestling business. And Bischoff always gets the the thing about creating nitro creating the nwo and and making wcw uh, the number one wrestling company in the world for, for that for that short period of time uh, in the late 90s and he always says that he knew when he took over at wcw and he was going head to head on a monday night that he couldn't compete with the wwf with what they were doing they had uh, the, the market with regards to the kids and the younger age groups and so on they had those nailed down that was their audience that was the way it was and he said that he could either be if he tried to compete with them he would always be second best so if he cannot be better than them he had to be different to them yeah so he would he tells the story that he had like one of these yellow i think he refers to it as a legal pad but like you know like an a4 notebook sort of sort of effort and he would list down one side of the uh, one side of the piece of paper, aspects of the WWF and what they did well, and how he would be different. So he started off with their taped, we're going live, uh, and that was the, the the gist of this list he made. And the big thing that kept coming back to him was realism, making it real. The NWO storyline being as real as you can possibly get it, and that would be then more. I suppose uh, the, the catchment area he was then looking at was the, the, the older group of people, the, the sort of teenagers going into their 20s, into their 30s and so on. And that is how WWE, uh, sorry, WCW overtook WWE, WWF for that period because he was trying to be very different to what they were offering at the time. So it's interesting you mentioned there the realism aspect in comparison because it's literally what Bischoff was going for in his own words. Can I just, because I won't be able to hold this in for however long we're going to be talking about this pay-per-view because it's going to be impossible. Can I just reveal my surprise to both of you now? Yes. Yeah, sure. yeah. Is that yeah. all right? Yeah. So as I've just said, I've hated WCW. Couldn't give us stuff about it and so on and so forth. And then because of your brilliantly put together podcast, and I've said it to you oh, privately, you I've said it yep. to you on podcasts and everything. I've said, I'm not going to listen to Nitro Nights until Scott Hall comes along. And I want to learn I want to learn about the NWO, mm-hmm. how it started, how it finished. Because it's something that I know for a fact had a massive impact in WCW, I, or more specifically the wrestling world. I, I, I know that. Yeah, it changed everything, yes. Yeah, and, but I knew nothing about it. So when you did your uh, um, Bash at the Beach um, review, I was just like... I can't get enough of this podcast and I'm going to have to watch the promo because I've seen the Hulk Hogan thing uh, several times anyway. Mm-hmm. But when you've got you and Danny's uh, opinions about it and then I'm kind of like linking that into what I'm seeing, I'm like, this is just even better and better than what, I, what I've seen before. So then you did a, an episode where you were talking about this massive brawl that happened at Disneyland. Um, and I thought... Well, Cam Griffin has come out and talked about it as well and said how good it was. Do you know what? I'll give it a go. 
let's just see what it's like. Are these two just being biased towards a product that they're podcasting about and it's not actually probably going to be that good? I watched it and I'm like, this is amazing. This is fucking incredible. Yeah, I'm actually... I don't know who any of these wrestlers are. I I knew the likes of Benoit and Rey Mysterio and so on and so forth, but I'm like, this has actually gripped me already. I'm already... you've, You've got me already. So I was then continuing listening to your podcast and stuff, and then you asked me to cover this show, and I was thinking... Well, firstly, I'm honoured for you to ask me to come on. But secondly, it's like, Christ, I've got to watch a three-hour-long WCW pay-per-view. I, I don't think I'll be able to do this. I, I think I'll be pulling my, my non-existent hair. And um, <laughs> essentially, I don't know how this is going to go. Well, this is the surprise. Because of this pay-per-view, I am now two months ahead of what you're watching. And I'm at the... I'm not going to say anything now, but... I'm basically two months ahead because I'm that invested in this product. Wow. Wow. Now, sorry to interject. I will, I will say it's just the NWO stuff. Uh Yeah. I think it's absolutely outstanding Yeah. because when you've got me, who's watching 2011 WWE, which is some of the worst TV I've ever seen in my life. And then you're seeing a product like this with the NWO. It's like, <sighs> this is fucking amazing. I, I, I genuinely cannot get enough of it. Wow. I fucking love Hulk Hogan. Mm. And I can't believe I'm saying this. But <laughs> the giant is just incredible. He's rubbish in the ring, but on the microphone and the way he acts, mm. I'm just like, this is amazing. Because I only know Paul White through the big show in WWE. I know nothing about him in WCW. I've never seen any of it. In fact, one of my notes in this is Big Show's part of the NWO. What? That's what I've written down right there because I didn't know any of this. And because I did my Attitude Era history, I know in my head what was going on in WWE at the time. So when you're watching this product... And comparing to the WWE, it's like, or WWF at the time, it's like, they're literally night and day. Yes. Yeah. And you can actually see where the realism of wrestling then turned into this attitude era. You can see the beginnings of it, and it's because of this bloody product here. Uh And it's because of this pay-per-view, I'm now two months ahead of what you're doing. So whenever I'm listening to your podcast, and because you're, well, three months behind, I'm like... Nah, Danny, that ain't going to be happening. Sorry, Si, you don't know what you're talking about. It, <laughs> it, it's mad, but it's yeah. it's because of you guys and what you've done that I'm now invested in a product because of this one pay-per-view. That's, that's, that's fantastic yeah, to hear. That's blowing me away, mate. That is brilliant. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. That's, that's incredible to hear. And, I mean, there is so much great television. And I think the... I've said it numerous times before, but I think what works well with, with this particular show is that I, I, I love WCW, but I've seen so much of it out of order. I've seen lots of it in order, but I've jumped around as well. And there's memories from from back in the day as well. But my memory isn't, you know, as strong as it once was, shall we say. And uh, Danny, on the other hand, has seen maybe a couple of clips here and there. So he's looking at it effectively with fresh eyes now so that's and we're talking and we'll get to it when we when we get to the main event and so on uh danny was messaging me whilst he was watching the go home nitro for this show 
and this pay-per-view as well and basically saying he can't believe what he's seeing and so on now i know certain aspects going forward and we try not to talk talk ahead of ourselves timeline wise on the show because we're covering it week to week but danny was saying to me this was amazing and he basically told me i got worked yeah. and i was like that's the fact that it's now i mean what are we in 2023 now 1996 you're looking at what 20 was that 28 years 27 yeah. years whatever it may well be old television and it's still having that effect on people yeah, it's, it, it, it's like i discussed to death in my 2011 era it's stop patronizing me stop it just Tell me a simple story. Like I always use Line of Duty as a prime example of some of the best TV I've seen since Breaking Bad. It draws me in. It's simple. I'll give you a very, very current product that came out where I'm like, nope, I'm not buying it. It's this Luther, the film, Luther, the Falling Sun or whatever it's called. Okay. I hated it because I couldn't buy into the fact that number one, the CGI was terrible, but number two, the story was just ridiculous. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. This is stupid. This makes, I'm not invested in any of the characters. This WCW, I'm like, I want to know about Hulk Hogan because of his character. Mm-hmm. I want to know about these two people on the screen in front of me right now and Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. I want to know their purpose, what they're doing. It fascinates me mm. because they're telling a very simple story and you're getting engaged in the product. You're not being patronized. And I'll tell you what I bloody loved about this is the commentary team just tell a simple blasted story. They just, they tell me what's going on. In fact, I'm sure it was you on one of your nitro podcasts that you talked about, or maybe it was another podcast that I listened to, but either way, they just simply said the commentator simply just telling me the audience that knows nothing, what's going on, pretty much patronizing me the story. It's like, thank you. It's all I need to know. Mm. It didn't affect my viewing, um, my viewing pleasure at all it was just oh that's why that happened right that's it cheers and they actually make the storylines important whereas in i'm sorry to keep comparing 2011 wwe but i will do because it's 20 years later and it's almost gone backwards the wwe product because it's just you're not you don't care about the storylines that the people that are on screen are essentially just clean cut individuals that know they're going to be winning matches and everything. And they know that they're the number one guy in the company. Um, the, 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 the commentator teams, the fans don't really care about anybody. Whereas this WCW that I'm watching, everything matters. Yes. There's a purpose to it. And that's all I care about. What's yeah. the reason for this, this, and this, if we go back to your classic saying, which is give me a reason why these two are fighting. That's it. Mm, yeah. But WWE 2011 doesn't do that. No. Hence why I'm just blown away by the quality of this NWO stuff. Cause I think it's absolutely gold dust. It is. And it, as I said, it, it became the, the biggest and hottest thing going. I mean, this is at the beginning of the, the yeah. 83 week streak where they beat uh, raw in the ratings every Monday night. So yeah, it, it, it gets, it gets better and then it does drop off. But yeah, there's a lot of a uh, a lot of varying quality television coming up. But again, so much happened in this company in such a short period of time. And we're talking uh, sort of latter third of 1996 now. They went out of business at the start of 2001. 
So it's, you know, it's, it's not even like it has a massive long run or anything like that. But we better dive into the pay-per-view itself and start getting a few opinions of that also. But before we do, this aired on a Sunday night, obviously, as most pay-per-views do. But WCW has a weekly show on a Saturday night. So I suppose, Danny, we better have a, a little look as to what happened on WCW Saturday night, my friend. Let's do it, mate. WCW Saturday Night is brought to you by me, Scottish Danny. So the night before this, we had the Nasty Boys defeating High Voltage, who we've just uh, not seen too much of. We had Rick Steiner defeating Kurosawa. We have Lex Luger dropping Ron Studd. Now that's a match I want to see. I don't know about you, sir. I'm I'm okay with not seeing it, but you, you, <laughs> you, you knock yourself out, mate. <laughs> and then in our main event, we had Diamond Dallas Page defeating Jim Duggan by disqualification. Huh, interesting. I'm not yeah. 100% sure about uh, Nasty Boys and so on. I'm, I'm, we'll talk about them more when we get into the pay-per-view, but my opinions on them uh, should be pretty well known by now for people who listen to the podcast, but uh, we'll get through to that. Okay. I mean, there is a bit more from Saturday night as well, but we'll get to that in a moment because our pay-per-view begins, as most WCW pay-per-views do, recapping the hell out of everything. But on this occasion, I didn't mind it so much. We get, we had a whole recap of the NWO uh, invasion or attack, as they're wording it in certain aspects, and looking at the right, right way back to when Scott Hall debuted. Um, slightly edited in places i mean we the line that kevin nash says when he debuts saying this is where the big boys play her look at the adjective play that's cut because obviously the word play isn't an adjective and quite famously he looks pretty daft in that and also when hogan turns we have the bobby heenan line of yeah but whose side is he on removed from the footage as well but those are small things to me we then have a bit more of a recap including the the sting turn that we saw on nitro last week here on nitro nights before we're greeted by our commentary team of bobby heenan tony Schiavone, and dusty Rhodes. all right steve-o i know that i've never asked this of you in the past because it's not a topic that we would have covered but bobby heenan tony Schiavone, dusty Rhodes, as a team or individually as commentators in general what's the feel because obviously you've seen a great deal of well, Jim Ross, and obviously in later years, Michael Cole, I guess. So what is your feeling on on these three as individuals and potentially also as, as a team, I guess? So I knew them from the pay-per-view that was held at that motorcycle, uh, Hogwild? Hog yes, that's right, Hogwild, yeah. Yeah, so I, I forgot to say, yeah, I'd, I'd watched that pay-per-view as well, which um, I found, fasc- again, fascinating at the fact that it was in the middle of a, a motorbike festival. But anyway... Again, I, I just go back to it. They're engaged in the product. They actually give a shit about what they're talking about. They're, they, they're actually telling me, uh, a complete naive individual that knows nothing about anything, what's going on. And the three of them seem to actually care. There's no script. There's no, I have to read off a telecast and talk like this. And I'm boring myself <laughs> while I'm reading. Whereas these guys, it's just, let me tell you something about this. Yeah, well, let me stop you there because, oh, yeah, but they're talking to each other Mm. like a normal conversation. And 
I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie here. I know who Dusty wrote Dustin Rhodes is. Uh, sorry, Dusty Rhodes is, but I know of Bobby Heenan. Uh, who's the other guy? Sorry, Tony Schiavone. Tony Schiavone. Yeah, obviously I know him from AEW. Yes. And of the three, he seems like the one that feels like the one that's reading off a script, shall we say. He doesn't come across to me as as natural as the other two. But as a three, I yeah, I, I really um, enjoy their work. Okay. I, I think Schiavone... Shivani's your, your, your play-by-play guy. He's your Jim Ross of the group, isn't he? Whereas Dusty Rhodes is is Dusty Rhodes. It's a he it, it starts off as a character, but by this stage in his life and career, Dusty Rhodes is Dusty Rhodes. There is no character anymore. That's who he is. And obviously, Bobby Heenan is playing Bobby the Brain Heenan. So I, I like the I like the, the banter back and forth. I guess for want of a better phrase between Heenan and Dusty as well. Um, they are talking the Sting turn also and really putting forward high huge this is and how it's a catastrophe for wcw they've lost their franchise player they've lost their their top guy their their number one baby face for so many 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 years uh danny we'll come to you now because this is the first time you've watched this uh this sort of few weeks of television and as i said earlier on you messaged me saying you were completely worked you completely bought into this sting turn at what point in the show did you twig what was actually going on? I had an inkling just as the match started, but I was still right up until that interview where you see Sting, and we'll talk about it later, but right up to the pre-match interview, I was thinking, wow, what is going on? But when we saw Sting try to protest his innocence, um, that's when I started to twig something. But all throughout this, especially during this opening, I was just thinking... Wow, because I remember I sent it to you, Si, um, how disappointed I was that this wasn't saved for a pay-per-view. <laughs> yes, and that's uh, that's the aspect sometimes of our show that I do find a touch frustrating, but in the long run, I think it works because you're saying certain things when we record and you're saying, about why wasn't this saved for the pay-per-view and, and so on? I know what's coming and I want to say because of this, this and this, but I can't. Can I yeah. just for you? So. <laughs> Sorry to interject there. To be fair, I get like that with my own podcast regarding 2011. Yeah. So I'll mm-hmm. listen back to my podcast and I'm like, because obviously I'm I'm eight weeks ahead of what's released on, on here. And even me, when I'm watching 2011, I'm like, oh God, why are they doing this for? Why are they doing this for? But then eight weeks later, it's like, like, sorry. Oh, yeah, that's the mm-hmm. reason why. But I go back to it. The commentators could have told a simple story, but they don't. They, 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 right. they it's too. Um, it's almost like a, a mystery around what's going on because it's like being played out live on TV. But then it's almost like they're trying to figure out right. This is the way we're going. But like you said, Sai, because you know where it's going. It's well, can't can't you see this, Danny? But actually, when you haven't seen it, like me and Danny. It is very, very difficult for you yes. to work out what's going on, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the aspect as well of, again, why I love doing this show, because hearing Danny talk about how, how much he's enjoying this and the fact that he's, you know, bought into the storylines um, and what that effectively he's bought into what they're selling, I suppose. Yeah. I love that. That genuinely makes me so happy. Mate, I, I, this sounds ridiculous i've bought into it so much i really want to buy an nwo shirt 
Yeah. I yeah. fucking love it. I love the fact that these individuals are so up themselves, but I love it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's fantastic. I'm like Danny. I've bought into it. And like I said, I'm two months ahead of you or ahead mm-hmm. of this pay-per-view now, and I've bought into it. And I'm yeah. a mark, and I yeah. love it. But just quickly, sir, yeah. how bloody good and convincing was that fake sting on uh, the Nitro? Since we can talk about it now, since the Nitro happened, that yes. was genius. Yeah, well, that's actually notes I've got for the main event as well when we get to yeah. seeing him come to the ring. Um, he's somebody that you've seen before, Danny, actually. Mm. Uh, this guy playing the the fake Sting or NWO Sting, as he goes on to be known as for parts of his career, uh, is played by a guy called uh, Jeffrey Farmer. Yeah. Now, I mean, that name yeah. might not jump out, but do you remember pretty much a year ago in our timeline, for Brawl 95... And we yeah. had the we had the terrible uh, Sergeant Pittman versus his ex soldier from the war and all that sort of nonsense. Oh yeah. Do you remember Cobra? Yes. That's fake sting. All oh, right. See, mm. when you say Jeff Farmer, you, you messaged me that day. I was thinking that NWO sting was solely in Japan. Like I've heard about an okay. NWO sting. Um, you did a lot of work in Japan, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what I never knew he came to WCW one mm. bit. So I was just blown away. But now and I'm even more blown away knowing that we've seen him. I have to go back and watch that. Yeah, and Cobra, let's let's not beat around the bush here. Cobra was shit. <laughs> so <laughs> But anyway, anyway, uh as the rerun of the Sting turn is shown in the arena, the crowd are booing when Sting appears on the screen. So they've bought into this as well, which I love also. Uh we then get a recap of Saturday night showing the NWO beating the shit out of Lex Luger's car and smashing the windows and everything, which I was another little touch there to the rivalry. And apparently the big show had to buy that car. <laughs> I, I read in my research for this um, Brilliant. <laughs> because they, they took out the, 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 it's a rental. And whenever the WCW would do ask, uh, angles like this and smash up vehicles, which they do quite often, they would take out these rental vehicles rather than buy them take out a certain level of insurance on the rental vehicle and declare how much they were going to break and up to what point. So then it, it would be covered in their insurance and so on. But apparently the giant got a little bit carried away, smashed the crap out of the car more than he anticipated or other people smashed the crap out of the car more than he anticipated. And the giant being one of the youngest guys there and easily led ended up having to foot the bill and effectively had to buy this smashed up shitty car. So yeah, I don't know what happened to it, but there we go brilliant stuff <laughs> our opening contest sees diamond dallas page taking on chavo guerrero and a little bit of a grudge match when page seems to be having this uh sort of running feud with the guerrero family at the moment eddie is still off our television after the attack by ddp when in reality i think he's over in japan at this point but anyway chavo is facing diamond dallas page here first of all with regards to diamond dallas page He's chewing gum and smoking a cigar at the same time. <laughs> I can't imagine anything more disgusting in my life. <laughs> Me either, mate. I mean, that breath must be kicking. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to be partial to the old cigar. Not so much anymore. But gum is something I've never, I've never enjoyed. Uh, the match starts with Chavo Guerrero throwing a couple of drop kicks. And we get the cool spot with DDP kind of hanging in the ropes and getting drop kicked to the outside. Chavo Guerrero is working Paige's arm a great deal. 
I'm not 100% sure what he's setting up for there or what his game plan is, but still, it's it's a story in the ring, isn't it? He's, he's working the yeah. arm, and that's part of his uh, part of his offense early on. Chavo misses a drop kick on Diamond Dallas Page, and Page takes control before eventually Chavo does start his fight back, hits a lot of top rope moves, um, and then we get a moment where Chavo Guerrero's thrown into the other ring because you know war games. We've got two rings next to each other, and normally in previous war games events um normally four brawl pay-per-view would carry that that type of match that wouldn't be allowed but in this pay-per-view it happens a couple of times and they just kind of carry on in the other ring don't they lads it's it's a bit of an odd yeah. one for me what, what did you guys think of this I, I just um because we watched last year's one i don't think it happened that often no no no, no. so this was quite refreshing as well um i enjoyed it because in a way it's like like the rings there why not just use it um use that space that you've carted off to get a uh, another ring in um it kind of makes it more unpredictable as well hmm. that, yeah, okay. that, that is literally what i thought it's in fact i've written here it's nice that um they're actually using the second ring um i i, I hate it in any anything where there's something so the, the elephant in the room shall we say yes and but they are acknowledging this elephant and they're, they they're using it to their advantage you know later on in the um, various matches it's it's used to the advantage of various other individuals and i think it's i think it's brilliant personally mm, okay uh, with regards to that then steve i mean obviously nxt uh with the undisputed era adam cole and all, all those guys started doing war games matches much more recently from a wwe standpoint I'm, i don't know if you watched much nxt in that period or anything like that but that setup without the cage then because obviously the cage is above them isn't it it's 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 high in the arena uh, but the two rings have to be there beforehand obviously that setup as you look at it how how weird is that to you, if at all, seeing two rings next to each other? Because it doesn't happen hardly ever in wrestling, and I'd say even less with regards to wrestling on the other channel, so to speak, the WWF. Yeah, I've one of my notes is literally two rings? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Because I'm going into this completely blind. I have no idea what the build up was to this match. Uh, sorry, to this pay per view. Nothing. I just literally come in to watch this pay-per-view never in a million years expecting to have to, I say have to, or want to watch the preceding uh, television. And I just was just like, this is amazing. Like okay. two rings. This is really, really cool. And I, I was, you know, again, my naive self is, I don't know much about war games other than what you've just mentioned uh, right. regarding um, NXT and stuff. But even then, I, I I think I watched the first one and that's about it. And I mean, it's on my screen now, the fact that DDP has just thrown Chavo into the ring. And I think, like I said, I think it's absolutely brilliant that they're taking advantage of the fact there are two rings. Mm. Yeah, it's, I mean, war games when it initially began was very much set up for the four horsemen back in the Jim Crockett promotions days in the 80s. And you have various groups of baby faces taking on the horsemen and so on. It was very much their match. And you normally find that you would have 4v4, or a lot of the time you'd also have 5v5. So the two rings, when it when they filled up, would make a lot of sense. Here, for a great portion of it, I, I don't think we really have much time in the main event when everybody is involved. 
with regards to people coming and going. So it doesn't really fill up in the way previous War Games matches would do. But obviously there are storyline reasons for that. But anyway, uh, Chavo Guerrero gets a near fall with a roll-up. Uh, before DDP hits a crazy, vicious power uh, power bomb, it looks amazing. Yeah. Uh, he signals for the diamond cutter, which is a move, Steve-O, that Danny and I have been talking about a great deal on the show because it's really getting over now. It's really sort of building momentum. This gets countered into a backslide attempt by Chavo Guerrero. Before that's countered again <laughs> into a diamond cutter for a three count, and I thought as an opener, this was pretty good. What what did you boys think of this? Excellent. Um, yeah, as as a uh, as you said, as an opener, this it just set the crowd. Um, it set the tone for the evening. Um, I love the fact that there's a little story here, and the story will continue because um, DDP. I mean, especially with the aftermath of DDP, um, just laying more kicks in and things like that. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Excellent stuff. What about you, Steve? What did you think? Yeah, like I said, I, I, I was really, really um, impressed by this opening uh, contest. And for me, uh, Chavo Guerrero means absolutely nothing uh, other than the fact that he was in some pointless rivalry with Sin Cara. Um, it was one of the worst <laughs> matches <laughs> I've ever seen. Um, it was appalling. And um, the fact that... I've got written down here that um, I get the diamond cutter is over, but the referee seems to take forever to count and get around the re- the two wrestlers to get the three. Um, but yeah, overall, like I say, there was a lot of them. What I felt very lot of choreographed DDP spots in this particular match, but did it take away from my enjoyment? Not really. Um, it w- one of the things that I've noticed with WCW is there seems to be a lot of moments where it feels like it's, we've got to get our spot in here. We've got to get our spot in there. Okay. Um, it takes it for me. It just takes away from um, my, um, what's the word? The disbelief. Um, <laughs> keep yeah, forgetting no, the, the, your suspension of disbelief. Yeah. yeah it takes away my suspension of disbelief because you can see that it's like, right, I've got to wait here for a minute while he's about to jump over. It, it kind of just, ruins my uh, the, the illusion of it but like you said as, a, as an opening match I, I enjoyed it for what it was mm. I thought Paige worked, worked really hard I thought he was bumping all over the place for his, his smaller yeah. opponent and for a while I didn't even think about the, the difference in size because it seemed so competitive so as far as I'm concerned as an opener it, it did it did a good job the crowd were into it so I think it's uh, it, it it accomplished what was needed I guess yeah yeah, and we'll have to see where it goes next uh, if Eddie Guerrero's coming back soon. Well, yeah, that's what I'm very interested in. Eddie versus DDP going forward, if it happens. I'm a, I, I'm aware of certain aspects with regards to both Guerreros that we go into in the future, which makes for interesting TV as well. But what follows this is something very much of its time. And I can remember things like this. I can remember old messenger services, chat rooms, and so on. Uh, from I mean, 1996, I'd have been 15, nearly 16 at this point. And uh, we have Harlem Heat with Sherry and Colonel Bloody Parker uh, <laughs> at the CompuServe set where you had to type in certain keywords and you could chat online with Harlem Heat. Very much of its time. But also, I think, 
I mean, now, obviously, it's incredibly dated. Of course, it's because of the technology we've got now. But in 1996, I don't really think there was much of this going on anywhere. You know, I mean, the, the, the WWF would have certain internet-based stuff going on, interactions with wrestlers at some stage. But I think, if my memory serves, this whole CompuServe setup was a little ahead of its time for WCW. Has anyone got any memories of what WWF were doing at the time? I know they had an internet show at one stage, but that was a yeah. little bit after this, wasn't it, I think? Yeah, I think that was, the, uh, if not the end of 96, the beginning of 97, they had Livewire. And ah, yes. Livewire turned into Bite This, and I've spent years trying to find episodes of Bite This. I've only been able to find... Um, random clips or reports or something because that was a really interesting show it was sort of like this way the fans could write in and um or email and talk to the wrestlers and it's just such a shame that's never been uploaded to the wwe network because it was very very controversial um yeah Russo but that, involved in that wasn't he was Vince Russo um, at the beginning yeah, at yeah. the beginning, yeah, but I mean, there's, I mean, this went on until 2006, so 10 years or oh, nine years, and I've been look, hunting it down for years, but I've not been able to find any four episodes. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Why? Well, okay, fair enough. Well, there you go, people in the Twitter universe. If you have full episodes of Bite This or whatever the show is called, yeah, at Nitro underscore Nights, message us <laughs> and let Danny see them. Um, <laughs> up next, we have somebody who is normally all over the place on nitro and pay-per-views and so on but this is the only appearance he makes on the show mean gene is here with a special report on the attack and it's a little video package recapping i suppose in a way mean gene is recapping the recap we've already had because he's basically showing us a great deal of what's already gone on with the nwo and the storyline there and so on this was a pre-recorded segment done in a very kind of tv studio you know making it seem incredibly serious uh, that aspect to it and again like i said a pre-recorded segment and that's all we get from mean gene on this particular pay-per-view which is very strange because gene's normally everywhere he's in the aisle he's backstage interviewing people but it turns out that his contract had actually expired by the time this pay-per-view went to air and he was trying the uh old i've got an offer from vince mcmahon to try and get his pay bumped up quite a bit by Bischoff and Turner and uh, WCW itself. And they called his bluff and basically said, well, if that's the case, then then head back to New York, head back to the WWF. But the offer either wasn't there or wasn't as high as Gene was making out. And he eventually re-signed fairly soon and was back on WCW TV again. The figures I found, though, gents, is, is pretty staggering, really, because it was 1996 and what Gene did in WCW with regards to backstage interviewer and manning the hotline. Uh, he was, with regards to his, his cut of the hotline fees as well, the you know $1.50 a minute, he would get a cut of that for people bringing in. And his basic wage, the figures that I find are between $400,000 and $420,000 a year Mean Gene was making. I find that st- a staggering amount of money for, for what Gene was actually doing on screen. Wow. And that's just blowing me away, mate, because it's like... He is a big part of this NWO storyline. Um, I mean, he, he's, the way he's just interviewing people like Nick Patrick, um, Hulk Hogan, if they lost him, which, as you've just said, his contract's just expired, I can't believe they would uh, have such an oversight like that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it was a case of they weren't aware. I think it was more a case of the Gene was trying to 
fleece him for a few extra dollars. Shall we say? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but good luck to the guy. Get what you can get. Um, on the on the topic of contracts and comings and goings, shall we say? Uh, JJ Dillon, the former manager for the Four Horsemen back in the Jim Crockett Promotions NWA days and so on. He is coming into the company at this point. His contract with the WWF uh, is basically, I don't know if it expires or he asked for a release because around this time in the WWF, they're, made, they're, they're struggling financially. They are really, really struggling. We hear the stories about the water coolers being, the, you know, the rented water coolers being took out of the offices and so on because they couldn't afford afford them and they were making cutbacks everywhere. And uh, Bruce Pritchard tells a story about an over 50% of his wage was a cutback and so on. JJ Dillon apparently had just bought a house on the premise that he was going to be earning X amount of money going forward. Was then told literally within a fortnight after this, yeah, we're changing your deal. We're cutting your money. We can't afford to pay you. He also had a, I think it was a son who, or yeah, I think it was a son. It was a child anyway, a son or a daughter. I'm fairly certain it was a son who was disabled. So he had certain financial uh, requirements there. So he was leaving his role in talent relations in the WWF to come over to WCW and take a, a role here. But also at this point, we have Jim Ross on WWF television stating that Diesel and Razor Ramon were under, well, they're taking negotiations with the WWF and they were signing new contracts and Diesel and Razor Ramon were returning to the World Wrestling Federation. This, of course, then led to fake Razor, fake Diesel arriving in the mid-90s. Uh, you know, I think it was uh, Bogner, Rick Bogner, I think, played yeah. the role of Razor Ramon. And Kane, Glenn Jacobs, played the role of fake Diesel. Various stories from the WCW side dictate that when Jim Ross was on television saying that Razor and Diesel were coming back, WCW panicked went to Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and said, here's more money to stay. They, of course, were actually planning on going bloody nowhere and just signed the contracts with a big grin on their face for a big fat pay rise. Now, <laughs> Eric Bischoff has in recent years uh, said that that's not the case. Nash and Hall before his passing both said, no, it happened. We got a big bump. But of course, they're not going to say anything, are they? Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a little bit of the, the comings and goings that was going on behind the scenes at the time. Partially because it's interesting and partially because I didn't really want to get on to the next match because I think it was a stinker. <laughs> and that's uh, Ice Train versus Scott Norton, the former Fire and Ice tag team. Uh, they split up. I know Danny was quite invested in that tag team for the short amount of time they were together. Yep. For some reason, this match is a submission match. Neither guy screams out submission-based wrestler to me. I think this is probably a probably the lowest point of the show gents i mean we'll come to you first of all steve i mean it's two big guys smacking the crap out of each other i appreciate that they got to try and get a little bit of everything on a pay-per-view different fans like different types of wrestling there are some people still to this day that would enjoy this kind of aspect of it they are the bigger guys beating the crap out of each other submission match though did it need that stipulation steve well, what are your thoughts i'll just ask you the question why is it a submission match What's i don't the- know <laughs> i've got no idea <laughs> well that that's what I, I can't get my head around there's a lot of something that i've also noticed with a lot of wcw is that a lot of things don't make any sense at all so for instance spoiler alert um at the end of this match um i've written down here so the whole match we've had to hear an individual shout 
I submit, I quit, whatever. And yet the winner, who I completely have forgotten who it was, um, doesn't say anything and he just taps and that's it. So it's just kind of like, so the whole time that the referee is basically saying, do you quit, do you submit, was completely pointless. Um, I've got written down here, there's a submission match here with two absolute units, especially Ice Train. I mean, he is just ginormous. It's awesome. And um, you forgot to mention uh, Teddy Long. Yes. I couldn't believe seeing him. Like, considering he's the SmackDown general manager who I absolutely detest, here he is <laughs> as a manager mm-hmm. in, in WCW. I was like, what the fuck? Like, this is so weird. Yeah. Because remember, I'm watching this 10, 15 years later in 2011. I'm seeing wrestlers that are performing in WWE. It's It's really surreal. And seeing Teddy Long, the size that he is and everything, it's just like... What the fuck? But yeah, I completely agree with you, though. This match is absolutely dire. It, it's a funny one with Teddy Long for me. A uh, little bit of context for everybody. Before I sit down, uh, sat down today to record w- 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 with you two fine gentlemen, I actually recorded an episode of Bang Bang Podcast, which is coming out on Monday. Oh. Uh, well, not, not Monday as this episode releases, Monday as in this coming Monday from the date we're recording now. Which and then just to make this more... just Sorry, just to make this more surreal my episode that I did with Bang Bang for my own podcast is coming out that day as well, would you believe? Oh, I Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Teddy Long, we, we looked at Wrestle War 1989, which has got one of the famous Flair Steamboat matches from their trilogy that changed wrestling at that point. It was, it was it, 1989's peak Ric Flair. He was amazing. Steamboat was incredible. They put on an absolute clinics. I forgot how the rest of the show was an absolute mess because I just focused on Flair Steamboat. And Teddy Long's on that show quite a bit as well. He, he started off as a referee in WCW and then ended up becoming a, a manager. And he ends up managing a tag team called Doom, who were really prominent in the early 90s in WCW, late 80s, early 90s, uh, before going across to the WWF and, and refereeing there as well. But as a manager, it's kind of something he's... he I always think of him as as a manager first because that's kind of what i saw first i guess which again is 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 funny how the dynamic of what you see growing up and what you experience for is kind of what first springs to mind isn't it whereas with, with me teddy long was a manager first as opposed to a referee or a a uh, gm yeah i mean with me he was a i always picture him as the referee from the wwf days from like okay. the late 90s early 2000s um, before they switched him to the gm but yeah i mean we have three different uh perspectives of um teddy long because of what we grew up on mm, it is it's funny uh Danny, we didn't actually pick your brains on this one what, what were your thoughts on this match considering you're maybe one of only three fans of the fire and ice tag team that i'm i've ever heard of in my life (laughs) (laughs) um to be honest it was bad but i think for a blow-off match which i'm hoping this is because i think they feuded with each other a a tad too long now i mean they had they're supposed to have a blow-off match at the um last pay-per-view but this pay-per-view i feel like they could they, they could end it here but i just have one word for this whole match was clothesline (laughs) <laughs> everywhere wasn't it <laughs> there was a lot of clotheslines there was a lot of clotheslines um a, a couple of things i took away from it was that considering this is a submission match 
I think we only maybe see two attempts at submission holds throughout the yeah. whole thing. And I also love the way that Dusty Rhodes can't say the word ventriloquist. <laughs> and he, has, he has three or four attempts, can't get it right. So Bobby Heenan jumps straight on it and rips the piss out of him. Which is yes. <laughs> Talking of Dustin Rhodes, actually, he um, uh, what I do like when commentators actually acknowledge what we, the audience, are thinking, which is basically these are two units that are in a submission mm-hmm. match, and he actually acknowledges that. He just basically says words to the effect of, why are these two in a submission match? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and, I, and I can't answer that. And nobody else could either, as far as I could tell. So, uh, Ice Train, sorry, Ice Train eventually wins with a full Nelson. And yeah. like Danny said, I kind of hope this is the end of their feud now. Yeah, I, I was surprised with that. Um, who won this match? I was for sure thinking Norton would win this, but yeah, that, that took me by surprise. Mm, okay. Uh, next up, we have. Again, a bit of a mix of um, presentation, a bit of a mix of body size, shape, and potentially wrestling style to a degree. We have Conan, who is being billed here as the Mexican heavyweight champion, which actually is the the AAA title belt that Kenny Omega held uh, recently. It, it's that that's the Mexican heavyweight title as far as WSW refer to as. I don't know why they don't just call it its proper name, AAA, but whatever WSW it is, what it is. And he is defending this title that we never actually see against Juventude Guerrera. Now, my first note here is that Guerrera is spectacular. He's incredibly nimble. He's quick on his feet. He can bounce from one set of ropes to the other to the other. And and it is one of the most coordinated and spectacular competitors, I think, on this pay-per-view. Yet still somehow manages to fall arse over tit over the steps (laughs) on his entrance. So I don't yes. quite understand how that works. But um, we'll come to uh, you again first, Steve-O, for this one. Uh, what did you think of this particular match? And also, with regards to Hubertu Guerrera and Conan, do you have memories of these elsewhere at all? Or is this the first time really sort of taking these guys in? So, firstly, um, I've literally written down exactly the same as you, but I've also got written down here, because I noticed this a lot with WCW, um, is this the real music um, being played for their entrances? I'm assuming. D- d- is that the I, case? I don't know. I don't know. I think I think Hubertu Guerrera has real music. That's the music that was played. Very stereotypical Mexican, almost borderline racist in a way. <laughs> music being played. Conan, I'm not sure about. I'm not sure. Okay. Okay, because as I keep banging on about, and I'm like we all do, is that when the fake music is played, it just takes me away from the, the atmosphere of the actual match that's approaching. Um, in answer to your question, I have no idea who these people are. I knew Jimmy okay. Hart, but yes. never seen Conan in my life. The only thing that I picked up with Conan is that he looks, if, if, you, if you've watched Breaking Bad or if anybody's watched Breaking Bad, he looks identical to Tito of Breaking yes. Bad. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite... We, in fact, I would argue that it probably is Tito, to be honest with you, <laughs> um, the actor that portrayed him. I think this I've got as my match of the night. I think it was absolutely mesmerising. Mm. I think it was absolutely brilliant. There's a lot of um, staged moments, which, again, I'm like, come on, like, do we really need that? But I think this is absolutely brilliant. See, I've I've heard. Uh, speaking of the stage moments, for example, one that pops to my mind is when uh, Hubertude Guerrera 
he goes up on the ropes yeah. and then springs from the top rope on one side to the top rope on the other side to the top rope on the next ring before flying it. And it, it, it's incredible visually. It's, it's amazing, very athletic and so on. But Conan ends up having to just almost stand, stand there and wait. Yeah. And I, I'm not a big fan of that. We see a lot of that in AEW people standing around waiting to get hit with certain moves and so on. I'm not a big fan of that. Uh, but I heard or read an interview with Conan himself talking about working with some of the smaller uh, luchador style wrestlers from Mexico. And, and he mentions Hoover to Guerrera. And he says that he had matches with Guerrera in Mexico and in WCW where he would stand there and wait for Guerrero's spot or, or move to come in not 100% convinced what Guerrero was actually going to do. Mm. So, so he would actually just stand there and wait, thinking, I, I don't want to move in case he's got something in his mind. And again, part of this, the conversation developed in this interview I, I was reading or, or listening to. And Conan explains it as, that was probably because when Guerrero would jump to the top rope initially, he wouldn't 100% know how he was going to come off those ropes. So I think that might play a little bit into it but i agree with you steve i thought this match was absolutely superb really really good stuff you know I'm what i found so i'm not a fan of conan being in the dungeon of doom yes i'm, I'm not i'm not i'm not about that i mean the dungeon of doom is very 1994 95 cartoony bullshit and conan has just had this gimmick change where he's almost like some kind of street thug more more realistic kind of aspect to him this is relatively new this style that conan's portraying here and then all of a sudden he's with this cartoony bullshit group. It doesn't that that doesn't quite work for me. But that aside, I, I thought this was great, and this is the best I've seen from Conan with regards to showing charisma, uh, a, a character, and also some fire. And and you know, again, I'll come back to it. Character in the ring. He's been a bit, to be fair, he's been a bit bland in his in his former guys. To be honest, uh, Danny. What did you think of this? Because I know Conan is very someone very familiar to you from from your TNA days, isn't he? Your love of TNA. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, mainly a manager by the time I started watching TNA, uh, or a mouthpiece, and he was he's absolutely brilliant um, on the microphone. Um, in regards to this match, yeah, I would agree with you. Too. I mean, this to me was the best match of the night. Uh, other than the main event, but that was more of a story. But in terms of in-ring, this was the best match. I think they used the second ring beautifully, to be honest. It was very, very um, well used for the for the two wrestlers. Um, yeah, I was a big fan of this match. Good stuff. Good stuff. Steve-O, you mentioned uh, not knowing Conan before this. Did you see any of this year's WWF, or WWE, sorry, that's such a force of habit for me from when i was growing up uh wwe hall of fame ceremony have you seen any of that no i haven't no okay ray mysterio is obviously the main the main induction i guess he is the the top of the class so to speak conan is actually the guy who inducts him and he comes okay. to the ring and it's worth watching because conan i mean we we spoke about it on a previous episode danny didn't we he's just so entertaining and he, he's genuinely funny and tells these stories about knowing Rey Mysterio when he was like 14 and trying to sneak him into nightclubs and so on. So we told him to leave the mask on. So they didn't realize how young he was and, and all these sort of brilliant stories. It's, it's well worth checking out. But, um, and with regards to some of the stuff that we see here, I, I've already mentioned he was Guerrero bouncing all over the place. Conan hits an really impressive looking sort of rolling clothesline effort. 
Uh, Conan also backdrops Hoovy out of the ring and uh, onto the onto the ropes of the other ring, which was quite yeah. a good use of, of the the second ring there. And then there's a crazy German suplex where I think Guerrero was pretty much dead when he hit that. And eventually Conan wins the match with the power drop move. Uh, but by the end of this, they both look blown up. They both look like they've given everything. They both look exhausted. And I'm, I'm with you two guys. I, I, I really, really enjoyed this. Yeah. I, I, when the match started, I couldn't believe how quick the turnaround was from the, the previous match with Ice Train. It's almost like but by the time Ice Train had got to the top of the ramp, they'd already started the match. It was mm. just like... Oh, okay. We're we're already straight into this. Um, I've also got written down here. You know, it's a good match when you're not even listening to the commentary. You're just enjoying the action for what it is in the ring. Right. Yeah. And like you say, the the use of the second ring as well played into great effect. There were a lot of bo- like what I noticed was a lot of botched spots. In fact, because <laughs> I've got it on screen in front of me as as we're watching each match. Um, right at the beginning. Conan throws Guerrero out the ring and actually Guerrero kind of like jars maybe his foot or his ankle ah, and like yes. potentially could have the match could have been a, a, a short one but thankfully like you said it turns out to be potentially the match of the night mm. yeah. yeah and yeah. did you notice his ring music when he came to Conan's ring music when he came to the ring was his normal uh, whatever that was but then when he won this match they played the Dungeon of Doom theme song Yes, they did play the Dungeon of Doom theme. It just doesn't work for me. No. <laughs> it just doesn't. I, mean, I, I meant initially then Conan in the Dungeon of Doom, but I'll extend that to the whole Dungeon of Doom. It just doesn't yeah. work for me. It's, it's, just, <laughs> it's just nonsense, but there we go. Um, you mentioned the, 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 the quick turnaround into the, into the next match, and that is something that I really think gets picked up even more so with the next couple of matches. And I wonder if that's... The feel of that is very quick. It is match, match, match. It just sort of flows all the way through. And I wonder if that's caused in part by Mean Gene's contract situation. Because yeah. normally when we've seen episodes of Nitro, but especially when we've seen pay-per-views and clash events, you get a match and then you inevitably go to Gene somewhere and he's talking to someone before coming back for another match. So I wonder if that is kind of what caused it. And also, I wonder if this, I suppose, speed that we're getting through the card contributes to the end of the pay-per-view because the, the match the, the main event match gets tied up and done pretty quickly and a lot of what we see after the main event was effectively ad-libbed on night to fill the pay-per-view time so i wonder if that kind of contributes to that as well but I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that when we cover the main event uh, up next we have chris benoit a member of the four horsemen so he's naturally going to be hugely popular here in north carolina and he is taking on an incredibly young a very bland, generic, white meat babyface version of Chris Jericho. Uh, I I thought this was bloody fantastic as well. When you've got two guys who are as good as these guys are. Um, I'm, I'm not going to dive into, again, my thoughts on Benoit and the end of his life. I feel almost like every time I discuss Chris Benoit on a podcast, it comes with an asterisk next to his name. Horrid way his life ended. Horrid way for a man to behave with his family. But I want to try and separate that from the Benoit that I see in the ring. And this match was superb. And I think Benoit here, everything he does has a snap and a pop to it. And again, it comes back to looking realistic for me. Uh, Danny, we'll come to you first on on this occasion. What are your thoughts here on this Jericho-Benoit contest? And Jericho's, I think it's his pay-per-view debut, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, In terms of the match, not 
that long ago, I think it was sometime last year, I went down a rabbit hole of watching every Chris Benoit versus Chris Jericho match in the WWE. Um, I think I spent about two weeks uh, finding them and watching them. And they, they, <laughs> they were You need all... to get out more. Yeah, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, to me, I always would put their match at um, WWF Judgment Day 2000 as their top match until okay. I saw this. I mean, these two had great chemistry together. Um, Chris Benoit gets a pop for just using a headlock takedown. Now, there's t- th- with that, it always reminds me of uh, the first time I ever watched SummerSlam 1999, and there was a match between Jeff Jarrett and D'Lo Brown. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget watching that videotape and hearing the crowd pop when D'Lo Brown, all he did was a, um, a, a same thing here, headlock takedown. And I was like, you would never get a pop for that these days. So you, that was I, just so just refreshing. Can some basic background on that as well yeah. because like you i'd only ever seen the the actual pay-per-view itself i'd never seen any of the rules anything to do with that the reasoning why he was getting so many pops for any move that he did because i was thinking of the one where he does his um funny enough a bit like the power bomb that ddp does in this like the spinning oh, like and the, then bang. the sit down yeah yeah the sit down power bomb yeah he gets this huge pop and it's because the storyline was is that jeff jarrett was treating deborah like garbage so jeff jarrett tells deborah you're not coming out to the ring you're 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 a piece of trash blah 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 blah. just treating her like dirt and then d'lo brown brings her out instead and the crowd are so far behind deborah that anything d'lo brown did that's why the crowd pop and it's it's i agree with you it's fantastic yeah yeah, uh, no, thanks for that. And the same with this. Um, I think if Chris Benoit wasn't a member of the Four Horsemen, the crowd kind of wouldn't have been there for him until they got into the match because when he walks out to the ramp, he gets a massive, massive ovation. Mm. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? And we've mentioned it on previous episodes here of, of Nitro Nights in that the Horsemen were always heels and always worked worked their best as heels and they helped make Sting. Uh, the whole Dusty Rhodes was hugely popular when he was the main adversary of Flair and the Horseman back in the mid-80s. Uh, Luger, when Luger got kicked out of the Horseman, turned babyface, everyone was behind Luger because the Horsemen were the evil bad guys. Here, it's a really weird scenario because they've never really... Uh, it's not like a proper face turn has happened. But just because of where they are and the fact that they're taking on the NWO, who are very popular in their own right, don't get me wrong, that the horsemen have almost turned babyface. Yeah. Just because the NWO are supposedly the bad guys. It's quite a weird dynamic, I think. Um, Steve-O, with this match here then, Jericho Benoit, uh, what were your thoughts and how, how did this hold up, I guess, is, is the question I, I, I want an answer to with regards to the match that we saw previously that you were so fond of. So, this is a proper wrestling match. Yes, this is this is two individuals that know 100%. how to play off one another in the ring. But knowing what I've heard on Nitro Nights, this is Jericho's first pay per view. That's that right. right? Yes. yes. Yeah. So for me, I've written down here, no way, this is Chris Jericho's TV debut. But I know I'm wrong. But this is only a few weeks into his WCW career. Yeah. And. Yeah. I couldn't believe, now knowing what I I know, thanks to your podcast, 
that this was like two or three weeks later after his actual debut, how over he is. Mm. And it kind of reminds me of whenever you watch any form of WWE, in my case, WWE TV, and take the likes of Roman Reigns as a prime example, when these individuals, or The Rock or Austin, John Cena, et cetera, these huge, huge superstars, when they first come into the WWE, you can tell immediately Vince is pretty much saying, there's money in this guy. Mm-hmm. There is okay. money. Yep. And this is how I personally felt watching this with Chris Jericho, because again, I'm not going to give you too many spoilers or I won't be giving any spoilers, but let's just put it this way from what I'm seeing on the WCW TV that, that, that predecessed this, Chris Jericho has been pushed to the moon. And you could tell that they're just con- they are just backing this guy to be the next big thing, essentially. And I thought this match is, um, in fact, I've literally written here in the words of Danny, I love this match. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, f- for me, storylines aside, because I think the main event is is a wonderful piece of storytelling. For me, this is my match of the night. I enjoyed Conan Guerrera, but I, I liked this maybe a smidge more. Uh, so, some of the highlights we see, Y2J is throwing some really impressive, I say Y2J, that's not even his name yet, he's so young at this stage. Jericho is throwing some incredible drop kicks. Uh, he, he nearly tops himself when he tries to do a springboard to the outside and doesn't yeah. quite time it correct. That looked a bit uncomfortable. That was scary. He does pick up a few boos when he strikes a pose for the crowd. But I think that, again, is literally just because of where they are and the horseman factor. Uh, an abdominal stretch by Chris Benoit is used and then we get the, that vicious looking uh, top rope headbutt that he uses his whole career and we get the back and forth pin attempts then for the latter half of the match which I again I love because it shows they're trying to win a sporting contest I got a, I got a big bee in my bonnet about seeing people hit a certain move their opponent hits the deck and then they don't go for a cover they pick them up to do something else you're trying to win the match if the guy's on the floor cover him let him kick out at two and then pick him up. It just has that little bit more realism to me, but that's a, a personal hang up. Uh, Benoit goes for a tombstone, which is reversed and Jericho hits a tombstone of his own before Jericho then hits a top rope Frankensteiner, as it's explained on the commentary. And it just, just class move after move after move before we see a, I, I suppose a, a top rope German suplex or yeah. a belly to belly to back suplex by Chris Benoit for the win. And yeah, I think both guys worked incredibly hard. Uh, it was a great back and forth and I would happily sit down and watch this again, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I hope this rivalry continues to be honest with you. Cause yeah, this was just brilliant. Yeah. I enjoyed it too. I enjoyed it too. Uh, up next, we have, I suppose, more Mexican-based cruiserweight action uh, with Rey Mysterio defending his cruiserweight championship against Super Calo. Now, we've only seen Super Calo, I think, once, Danny, yeah. previously. Yeah, that on was uh, last on the go-home Nitro, yeah. Right, okay. Um, again, the matches are coming thick and fast here. This this match, I, I thought, was was, again, still pretty good. But there were moments where I felt like it kind of ran a bit long for me. Did it need to go as long as it did? And But they, you can tell that whether it's Ray himself or the way the match is put together, they're trying to get Callow over. He dominates long portions of this match, doesn't he? Uh, Steve-O, we'll come to you, my friend. 
well, what did you think of this? And also, I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts on seeing a 1996 Rey Mysterio with a little bit less, shall we say, muscle mass, and definitely many, many less miles on the clock and knee surgeries. Uh, what are your thoughts on on, on this match and, and Ray in 96? And you can probably imagine when it initially appeared Ray Mysterio was coming on, I immediately went, booyaka, booyaka. I, I was just like, oh, for fuck's sake, I, I can't deal with anything to do with Ray Mysterio because of 2011. However, right. this is what's so fascinating about when you do history lessons, you go back to Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit. This is the first match those two, I believe, ever had together. And you think that you've just put on an absolutely outstanding match in your pay-per-view debut against however long Chris Benoit's been wrestling for. And then how many God knows matches that they had since that point. I mean, Danny's just said about the history that he did watching Benoit Jericho matches. And for me, seeing the history of, in this specific case, Rey Mysterio, all I was thinking is your words, which is this is the Rey Mysterio before what you just said, the the knee injuries and and Mm -hmm. a lot less body weight and stuff. And, He's a completely different human being. Mm. Like he's more of a, for me, the, the, the wrestler that I want to see in WWE, it's a bit more of a free, again, I know comparing 96 to 2011 is very unfair, but again, this is the wrestling company's choice to go in these directions of portraying wrestling as either a real contest or a choreographed contest. And watching watching ray here as i am literally right now the, the just the smoothness and the quick feet and everything just blows my mind it's a completely different person to what i'm seeing in 2011 but this super callow oh god just incredible mm. absolutely incredible and what i've written down here is this super callow is absolutely bloody brilliant albeit a bit of a high risk taker and you know, like, like going back to what you just said about Benoit and he does a move and it's like, come on, pin the guy. And then he goes for another move. But like you said, that's your own hang up. It's very similar to me when it comes to high flyers. It's kind of like, do you really need to be doing that? Right. Yeah. Do you need to be doing that? But certainly I thought, again, another cruiserweight uh, type match, which was extremely entertaining for a, a person that knew nothing about Super Callow whatsoever. Well, I'll, I'll put that into context for you um we've watched the weekly television since the very first nitro we know nothing about supercolor absolutely okay. <laughs> he, he's, he's popped up on a nitro uh, as danny said last week and we were told he's facing ray mysterio for the cruiserweight title that's literally you now know everything that we do so <laughs> which again it fascinates me because i'm watching this literally right now in front of me watching him in the ring thinking what this is his debut then this is incredible, like genuinely incredible, like something. One of the biggest beefs I have about 2011 is that a lot of the wrestlers are very, very talented at what they do. But in the weekly TV, it's that they don't really, from my personal point of view, they don't get across how good they are. Whereas when it comes to the pay-per-view, it's like, oh, wow, the that was an incredible match. Uh, Randy Orton Christian springs to mind as a, as a simple example. Yeah. Like I cannot stand them, but when it comes to their pay-per-view matches, it's like, what the hell have I just watched there? These are like two completely different people to what I'm seeing on the weekly TV. And I mean, I'll, I'll reverse the question. If this is the first time you're seeing super Callow, what were you then thinking? I'm assuming you were blown away by him. 
I, I really enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed his performance. Uh, there was some stuff that he did that we've seen since, but I'm try, I try and place my mindset into 1996, and I'm assuming that there was stuff that people hadn't seen before. I think the match was incredibly one-sided until Ray eventually got the win with with a, yeah. what what would become the West Coast Pop. I don't know what the name of it is here, but Callo, I mean Callo looks great. But it's one of the occasions where there's something on the TV that looks 1996. And I don't mean looks 96 as in I appreciate that it is from that era. I mean looks 96 as in now looks dated with regards to his ring gear. I'm not a fan of that. And the mask he wears with the glasses and the hat almost sewn. We're told they're sewn into the mask and it was made for him that way. That might have been cool in certain aspects of Mexican wrestling. That might have been cool in 96. Now, I think it looks fucking ridiculous. I'm not a big fan of that whatsoever. But, again, so much here that I enjoyed. And Callo, at one point, applies a key lock to Rey Mysterio's wrist. And Dusty Rhodes is comedy gold on, on commentary again, saying that Pat O'Connor once had him in that hole for 30 minutes one night. And he's like, yeah, that did not happen, Dusty, let's be honest. Um a surfboard move is used by Callow at one stage, but then he rocks him back and p- puts Ray's shoulders to the mat to get an attempted pin, which I thought was very unique. Um, Callow hits a drop kick to the floor from the top rope. Just things that now, I suppose in 2023, aren't potentially as mind blowing as they should be because it is still incredible feats of, of athleticism. Well, I, I but disagree. But 96, mind blowing. I'm what I've literally just watched a specific Hurricanrana in the second ring now, right, and okay. I'm just like, well, you may have heard me. It's just like fucking hell. Like, I personally think a lot because the thing for me is that I'm probably going to contradict myself now, but what I like about the the late '90s, early 2000s stuff is that a lot of the move sets that we see don't feel choreographed. It all feels naturalistic. Okay. Whereas you fast forward to 2023 as a simple example, and you always use AEW, um, you know, the young bucks and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Everything just seems like, right, wait for him to go up on the rope. Yeah. One, two, three. He's about to do the move. Right. Here we go. Yeah. It just drives me up the wall. Whereas this, I'm watching it now and I'm just like, this is so free flowing. Like the amount of moves that Super Callow is putting on Rey Mysterio is quite literally a match against John Cena and then eventually John Cena wins. Like, every match in 2011, John Cena is getting absolutely destroyed and then all of a sudden he gets his five set of move doom, whatever it's bloody called, and then the AA, and that's it, he wins. This Super Super Callow, I was so invested in him winning that I was actually gutted that he didn't. Um, And another thing, Rey Mysterio is only 21. Yes, what the fuck? Like, just blows my mind, and he's still wrestling to this day. Yeah, it, it's incredible. It's incredible. Danny, your thoughts, my friend? First off, I have to give a massive shout out to Mike Tanay because I think he did really well on commentary during ah, this, yes. including giving us the. Because I was, as Super Callow was getting in the ring, I was thinking, why is he called Super Callow? Then Mike Tanay immediately chimes in and says he's taken that name. Well, that name was given to him by the number one rap group in Mexico. Mm. So 
um, after that, I had a little of a, bit of a binge of the uh, of the, of the um, Calo rap group, and so yeah, Mike Tanay in this whole match, just um, you can see why he was hired, and he definitely did his job. In terms of the uh, match, yeah, just I, I can't say more than what you two guys have said. I mean, it's been is just fantastic. Um, another reason why they put the belt on Rey Mysterio, obviously, and I actually hope we see more from these two against each other. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, it's it's another match that went sort of fifteen minutes ish, and when you run down the card, uh, the opener was it was thirteen minutes or so. The submission match was a bit shorter, which you'd expect because these guys get blown up quickly because of the size of them and so on. But then you have the Conan match, the Benoit match, uh, and this one. They're all clocking in at fourteen, fifteen minutes ish. That rough ballpark. You could argue, I think, that if that's the case throughout a whole pay-per-view, it could start to feel slightly regimented, slightly, um, not predictable, but time-wise, kind of almost segmented, I guess. Mm. But I don't have that feeling. I think this has, up to this point, flowed really, really well. Yeah. Okay, excellent stuff. Uh, What comes next is a, a complete change of pace from all the technical wrestling and high-flying that we've seen in the previous couple of matches. We have Harlem Heat defending their WCW World Tag Team Championship against the Nasty Boys. Now, I enjoyed this more than I thought I was going to. It's a pretty solid brawl. Harlem Heat ultimately retain their titles. Um, but again... I, I think I struggle now. I've got to a point where I struggle to be subjective with regards to the Nasty Boys because I'm just so bored of them. But again, I enjoyed this more than I thought I was going to. So I'll, I'll literally throw this out to you two guys. I'll start with you, Danny. Talk us through what you saw in this match, what you liked, what you disliked. And then, uh, Steve-O, when, Danny, when Danny's done, let us know your thoughts as well, bud. First off, very disappointed that the Nasty Boys weren't introduced as being from Nasty Vero, USA. <laughs> They were uh, billed from being new, from New York, but now in a serious note, um, yeah, uh, this is. I think this has been the best Nasty Boys matches, one of the best matches we've seen on this um, rewatch of Nitro and the pay per views. Um, it, but it, as good as a match it was, I feel it just went a tad too long because when we was coming up to the finishing sequence, I honestly felt like this match had been going on eight hours. It was <laughs> <laughs> eight hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there was too much from um, Robert Parker because we, we're both massive fans of him. <laughs> um but I think it was definitely, to use a, a words that the legendary Mag says, serviceable, because um, we we know that this wasn't the original plan. It was supposed to be the Steiner brothers. So I think the Nasty oh, Boys yes, did, yeah. did definitely um, put on a um, a good performance. And uh, could it? I mean, we we've seen this match before on various nitros. I, I think it, it definitely deserved to be on the pay-per-view and I'm glad that the Nasty Boys definitely got some of their um, their best match that we've seen on here. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, Steve-O, obviously you'll be very, very familiar with Booker T, of course, uh, and you know, certain quotations we're aware of for the, the, the always brilliant UTT podcast. But Booker T, the in, in-ring competitor as well, we had King Booker in the WWF and uh, his, his you know, Booker T gimmick that was based upon his WCW persona when he was winning titles there as well. 
Harlem Heat with his with his brother Stevie Ray here. Have you seen much of Harlem Heat in the past? And well, if so, or if not, what did you think of this match? And and also a bit of a blast from the past, I think, with regards to the Nasty Boys. So I'll start with the Nasty Boys first. Okay. Obviously, I've got hindsight with everything or foresight, whatever. And all I've got in my head is you constantly saying, I hate the Nasty Boys. I hate the Nasty Boys. So when I came into this match, I was thinking, great, this is going to be terrible based on what Cy has actually been telling me in the Nitro Nights podcast. But when I watched it, I'm like, I don't know what their problem is. Mm -hmm. Because again, I'm only watching this as a one-off. And I'm thought that the nasty boys came across as what they need to do i'm assuming they're the heels they've got to be the heels haven't they in this it's not um, really uh, i i'm not sure they were heels they were definitely heels for a while and then scott steiner picked up an injury because it was supposed to be the steiners who are obviously baby faces taking on harlem heat the nasty boys have basically stepped in to fill the void because of Scott Steiner's in, you know, real-life injury, he, they can't compete. Rick Steiner's work in singles matches on Saturday night and so on. So we're not really sure as to where they stand with regards to who's the heel, who's the babyface, because it was almost like they were parachuted in, Danny, wasn't it? Yeah, the very... Um, I think this match has been, I want to say, two weeks build because of yeah. the Scott Steiner injury. Yeah, and that Nasty Boy's face turn kind of happened out of nowhere because... They hadn't really changed anything they were doing. They just said, oh, we're, we're on our own. We're not with Hulk Hogan. We're not with the NWO. We're not with WCW. We're on our own. So it kind of mm. just was like, yeah, you could tell it was rushed. Yeah. Sorry, Steve. Yeah, Karen. No, no, it, it's okay. It, it's good conversation. And I actually found that didn't the, the Nasty Boys seemed quite over with the crowd as well. There was a lot of cheering right. for, for them. And... Yeah, I like I said, I've got this on screen. I, this is the first time I'd watched it in about two weeks. And I agree. A lot of what Danny actually says represents my thought processes. As I see, um, is it woman? Yes. <laughs> name? Yes. Just literally rolling through the second ring. Oh, no, that was um, Sherry. Sensational oh, Sherry. Sherry. Sorry. Yeah, yeah Sherry. Yeah, of course. Woman, uh, woman is coming up. Yes. Sensational Sherry. This yeah. match, I agree with Danny. It did seem to take an attorney. I'm not really tag team match fans. Um, I really find tag teams a bit boring. Although, huh, I say all that, in 2011 WWE, they're actually some of the better um, aspects of the show. But what looking at the size of stevie ray just a fucking freak like yeah. he's he's chat you know and, and like we could all joke about doing like the, the book of t impressions and everything and whatnot but he's fucking brilliant in the ring i think he's great in the ring he's very very entertaining and um i mean one of the notes i've got down here is that you know What's his face? Booker T doesn't have the deep voice that he does later on in his career. It's a very quite a light um, voice. But then again, you know, I'm watching it again 12, 13 years later um, when he's just constantly going on about Goldie Kingston. But <laughs> it was the ending of this match, which um, just... I don't know. It, it, I've, I've got... I have to re-watch it as, as I've got it on the screen here. I've got... Um, but the blonde nasty boy who what's the blonde nasty boy called? Nobs. Brian Nobs. Brian Nobs. Um, he's holding Booker. Nothing is happening. And then um Sherry is distracting the other nasty boy, knocks over the cameraman, and it looks really, really real. 
Um, and it does look, because from what I vaguely remember of this match, it did seem quite authentic that the uh, two people that are representing Harlem Heat, the, the, the guy with the cowboy hat and Sherry, they they genuinely seem frightened of the Nasty Boys. Okay. Again, that's a good performance, I suppose. Yes, yes. But that's all they need to do, just make me believe. That's it. And if they're yeah. doing their job, it means they're doing a job well done. And um, yeah, like I said, the, the match itself seemed a bit... But considering what we've just watched, this seemed a bit like... Mm, you know, mm. but then again, you always need that breather in between any pay-per-view, so... I can't, I can't blame it for being a bit flat, but, you know, again, it wasn't horrendous. I didn't think to myself, Jesus Christ. It wasn't like the, the ice train match, shall we say? Mm. Yeah. Okay. I think, considering what we've had, with, you know, Benoit Jericho was a fantastic wrestling contest. Uh, the Conan match was, again, a very good wrestling contest. We've had the, the Cruiserweight title match and so on. This is almost ticking the box i suppose for those fans who love a bit of brawling for me yeah and uh, I, I i do have a bit of fun at the expense of the nasty boys i'm not a massive fan of theirs i think i i i'm more fed up with the nasty boys versus public enemy because it seemed like we saw that every single week for god knows how long and it was it was basically the same match every every time you know the weapons would come out the match would get called off and then they'd go for a table and all this sort of stuff this is, I agree with Danny, probably the best Nasty Boys match we've seen since we started this Nitro Knights project. It's a functional enough brawl for me, but I, I wouldn't rush back and see it again. But I, I wasn't, I wasn't incredibly disappointed or anything like that. So it, again, it definitely weren't as bad as Ice Train versus Scott Norton. <laughs> yeah, I've got written down here in the words of Sai, If you're more interested in anything but the in ring in ring match, which I think I was based on Sherry and the other guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a great match. That's what I've literally written down here. Okay. So I think that, cause there was a lot, there is a lot of um, stuff going on around the ring with the two individuals and it does kind of distract you from what's going on. Yeah. The sad thing with that is Danny and I have noticed Sherry, Sherry Martel, sensational Sherry as she was in the WWF or sister Sherry as she is here. I think she's an incredible performer. She was absolutely fantastic in her WWF days. She she was brilliant with a million dollar man. She was superb with with Randy Savage in, in the late eighties, when he was uh, the Macho King, Randy Savage, and so on. Um, her interactions with Harlem Heat are also fantastic as well. Brilliant stuff. The Colonel Robert Parker aspect, I think, waters down the end product of Harlem Heat with Sherry. Yeah. Now he is there because he's got this kind of on again, off again, romantic relationship with Sherry. And there's this distraction aspect to what they're doing takes away from Harlem Heat concentrating on their match. And it led to them losing. Did it, did, it, led to, it led to them losing matches, Danny, but did it lead to them losing the tag titles at one point as well? I think it did very early on. Yeah. 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 Uh, so there's that kind of ongoing story, Steve, that's kind of always bubbling away in the background, but it is literally in the background so much that when they're not on TV for two weeks, I completely forget about it. Yeah. So I don't know if it's just being kept on the back burner for something bigger in the future. I, I don't know. I don't know. But I think Sherry is superb. Colonel Parker, yeah, I, I could do about him, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, our next contest is, I guess, the first real NWO versus WCW match of the night. 
and it concerns the giant who has recently sort of jumped ship, I suppose, crossed the line to the the dark side, so to speak, taking on the aforementioned Macho Man Randy Savage. Now, Savage on this show also cuts a promo about how much he wants Hogan. <laughs> this is all being built to the next pay per view when Savage is going to wrestle Hogan in the main event of Halloween Havoc for the WCW world title. I I quite like Randy Savage in this role. I, I've, I've always liked Savage anyway. He's always been, when, I was, when I was a kid and he was on WWF TV, I don't know if it was the colors or the charisma or, or I don't know what it was, but I always really bought into everything Savage did. Then I went for a spell of thinking a lot of it was quite silly. But now I'm older, I've gone back into loving stuff that Savage used to do. Uh, what do you two think about Randy Savage, the character, first of all, with regards to the get-up, the voice, the the mannerisms, the, the hat and the coat and all that? And then, most importantly, to, to me anyway, most importantly, Randy Savage, the performer, with regards to the in-ring content. So I suppose the promos and the character and then the actual wrestler himself. Uh, Steve, we'll, we'll come to you first, bud. So when listening to the Bang Bang podcast yesterday with Stephen Graham, they um, I think it was Steve said that he didn't. I, I, I could be completely misquoting him here or misrepresenting him here, but he said something like he didn't particularly enjoy Macho Man's promo work, and I thought, "We talking about? I think it's, I think it's brilliant, right? You know, just just it just it feels again a man that genuinely believes that he wants to face whoever he's." talking about whether in this case it's Hogan the giant whoever it doesn't really matter he again he's selling to me the purpose of why he wants to be in the ring which is good that's a in fact we'll do the Simpsons line that's good <laughs> the thing that I don't like is his in-ring performance that's bad Interesting. It's, in my opinion it's too fake um, right. it's too over the top and it's that 80s early 90s wrestling which comes across as yeah i don't buy this this doesn't look real to me it looks too um trying to too much protect yourself shall we say right okay I mean, it, it just seems you know when Shawn michaels does the over the top selling yes i find that i know why he's doing it but he's doing that for like an ironic purpose. Whereas macho man's actually doing it because that's what he does. And the fact that we've got a bloke here who can talk the talk, I just don't think he can walk the walk in my opinion. And, um, yeah, I just don't, I personally just don't buy into the macho man character. Although what I will say is that I've written down here, I want Cy to make that macho man t-shirt that he's wearing in this, uh, little package that he's done with the, uh, the, with, with the, uh, the the guy, whoever it was, Mike Tanay, Mike yes. <laughs> I will go back and check that out and uh, see what I can knock up. I'll see what I can knock up. Um, I always think Savage, Savage's best work with regards to his role on the card and his popularity and so on, tended to come as a babyface. We see it here and um, in the WWF as well. In in '92, he was chasing Flair for the world title going into WrestleMania eight. That was that was good and uh, various other aspects as well. But I always prefer Savage as when he's a, a, an in-ring wrestler, as, as a heel. 
Savage was superb at WrestleMania 3 as a heel against Ricky Steamboat. It's one of the best WrestleMania matches of all time. Such a fantastic contest. WrestleMania 5, Chase and Hogan. One of Hogan's best matches, I feel, considering how limited Hogan is as an in-ring performer. And I put that down to how good Savage was as the heel. And then the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania 7. Again, Warrior, incredibly limited as, as a performer. Great match for the drama and the story because of how good Savage was as a heel. Savage is a babyface. I've always liked Savage again because I grew up watching him. But I suppose the aspect for me is I, I do always prefer him when he's cheating a bit and he's being a bit sneaky and a bit you know a dirtier, edgier side to Randy Savage. Uh, what about you, Danny, with regards to the Savage character, the Savage sort of promo style, and then the in-ring uh, active and you know in-ring action? I guess we get from Randy Savage himself. I would say, uh, before we started this Nitro project, um, I had only seen the big important matches, as you just mentioned there, Sire, like the WrestleMania matches, the the uh, SummerSlam big matches that he's had. It wasn't until, um, and I did believe the um, narrative that WWE put out of, oh, maybe Randy Savage was just too old, and that's why Vince McMahon wanted to shelve him to commentary in 1994. Yeah. Until... Uh, we started watching his WCW career in, in order. And I, I think I said to you very early on in one of the shows we did, I can't believe Vince McMahon tried to shelve this man when he was having this quality of matches with like, uh, he had a brilliant pay-per-view match. Um, not that, not this one, but he had a match with uh, the giant on one of the pay-per-views we watched. And yeah, even the Nitro matches, he's just delivered banger after banger. I can't believe that Vince McMahon thought he had nothing left because even uh, just going back and watching some of the 93 or 94 Raws, he was still damn good in the ring, to be honest with you. I mean, I don't think he ever lost it until, until well, basically until he stepped away. Um, but I think his character overshadows his in-ring. So, like, he, he'll his promo work, he'll always be remembered for the character of Butcher Man than he was as an in-ring performer, just in my opinion. Okay, interesting. I mean, with regards to him uh, being told he was too old and being sort of shoved off to commentary when they wanted to do the, the, the new generation, wasn't it, with Brett and Sean and yeah. so on. Uh, Savage here in 96 is 44 years of age. <sighs> but to put that into context, um, John Cena and AJ Styles are around 45, 46. Mm. Yeah. So that just gives you a rough idea there. Um, this match itself, then, little guy versus big guy, uh, the NWO version of the Giant. One of the shorter matches of the pay per view. I think only Ice Train's match goes shorter. Um, I, I think it told a decent enough story, but I suppose more so, other than certain spots, either you guys may want to bring up. The thing I want to look at really is the finish of the match. This is a guy who, in four, five, maybe six weeks tops, is going to be facing your world champion in the main event of the next pay-per-view. And he kind of gets his ass handed to him at one point. Mm. Is that a correct way to build somebody up, do you think? Or is it just a story device they're using to sort of get the sympathy behind Savage approaching Halloween Havoc? Uh, Steve, what, what do you think? Well, knowing, knowing what I know what happens... Um, I, without not without wanting to dodge the question, but I will. 
I was more disappointed in the giant. Um, okay. Uh, how old was the giant here? I'm guessing 23. It's twenties, yeah, something like yeah, that. Because he's twenty-seven in two thousand, so yeah, to got four years, twenty-two, twenty-three, whatever it is. I'm more disappointed in him because I was really looking forward to this match as being like a big show slash giant mark. Okay, and I just watch him in the ring, and I'm just like, kind of like savage back then, like Danny just said regarding his promo work, maybe overshadows his wrestling ability. Um. I just think that his promo work is better than his wrestling ability. Very similar to the Giants. He he talks a good talk, but when it comes to in ring, I don't I don't personally buy it. I'm just like, oh, is, is that it? It's pretty rubbish, to be honest. In fact, I think he's made. I think the Giant is made to look really weak. And from what I've seen after this pay per view and so on, every time I've seen the Giant in the ring, I'm just like, I'm not impressed by you at all. I'm. In fact, it's annoying me that you're made to look weak in front of these individuals here. That's just how it comes across to me. Um, And a bit like with, um, you know, they always say about Benoit having a really poor promo, but really good in ring. It's like kind of like the opposite with with these two individuals here. And um, I'm I'm surprised. I mean, you may be mentioned in a minute, but I just absolutely loved it when Hulk Hogan come out. Right. Yeah. I fucking loved it the fact that he comes out and then Scott Hall and Kevin Nash um, attack Randy Savage and everything. And it's just like, Oh, this is amazing. Like they're, they're here to help their friend. It's not like again in 2011 where it's, Oh look, one of our factions getting beaten up. Who cares? Let him get beaten up. Whereas here it's, Oh God, Randy Savage. He's got a chance of beating the giant here. We've got to come out and stop this from happening. And that's what Hogan does. Yes, it, 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 it's it's brilliant. And um, I, again, the match itself, I didn't particularly enjoy. In fact, I've written down here. Um, there's a moment where, if you may have remembered, where the, the crowd, they're all looking at anything but the ring. They've all been yes. distracted by something. And clearly, I know what's going on. And I'd like to think you guys know it, it's someone clearly that's drunk and they're being kicked out of the arena. That's what used to happen in WWF a lot of the time. Mm. The difference is that the commentary actually mention it. And I'm thinking, hold on a minute, here, is something going on regarding someone coming to the ring and maybe attacking uh, the giant or Randy Savage or anything. But no, it's just the fact that they've decided to talk about something that's going on in the in, in, in the crowd and everything. But yeah, like I said, as a match, I was pretty disappointed with it. But from a storyline point of view, seeing randy savage getting his ass whooped i thought was just brilliant pretty much the same for me um this was all about the story um it i don't want to say it didn't feel important in terms of oh macho man versus um the giant in a match but it was all about how was this going to be finished i think the best thing that happened in this match was the pop that macho man got when he body slammed the giant yeah 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 that yeah. I mean, that crowd came alive. I think that might have been the pop of the night. That was a that was a big reaction, wasn't it? Yeah, a big reaction. Yeah, yeah. and and then how they finished with it, um, with the outsiders coming out and checking uh, uh, and Hollywood Hogan coming out and checking much a man to run backstage, and then him getting attacked. Yeah, it all serves as a device for the next pay per view, and yeah, and then the giant actually um, getting the win getting a clean pinfall as well you can't really say clean but he actually gets an uninterrupted pinfall it also helps the giant as well mm. yeah 
Okay, fair and enough. I, and I want that Hulk Hogan vest. I think it's oh, yeah. magnificent. It's, the Terminator half-face. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. It's so good. I like his boots in this era. Is it, is it now? Has he got them now? Is it in a year or two? The, the sort of NWO lightning-covered boots. Oh, they are so cool. Yeah. So cool. Uh, Savage being in the main event of Halloween Havoc has been nailed on for quite a while behind the scenes because of his sponsorship with Slim Jim. He's obviously the main spokesman and advert for you know, advertiser, sorry, for Slim Jim. It's a deal that he bought over with him from the WWF. It was an individual deal he had, as opposed to the company. And the salary that Savage gets paid, which is a huge sum of money at this point, a great deal of that is covered by the sponsorship money that Slim Jim are actually paying into the company themselves. The Halloween Havoc pay-per-view is sponsored by Slim Jim. And when we get there, we see the advertising on the ring posts and all the ring canvas, and it's all over the place. And that's why this pay-per-view, even though maybe two weeks ago it didn't make sense, they'd already made the decision, Savage Hogan, in the main event, because we're getting all of this money thrown at the company by Slim Jim as an advertising tool. So that's kind of why that's where we're heading in the next pay-per-view. But that's for in a few weeks' time. Before we get there, we have the main event of this show. And up to this point, probably the biggest wrestling contest, storyline-wise, we've had in WCW since we started Nitro Nights. Uh, We're, of course, talking about the War Games match. But before we get into that, we see a segment backstage with the, I suppose, WCW team, I want to say, of... Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, looking as only as Arn Anderson can, absolutely menacing and fantastic. And of course, Lex Luger, and the, the ladies are there as well. Oh, no, no Deborah, actually. There was no Deborah, was there? No. It was Miss Elizabeth and Woman were both there with Flair, Arn, and Lex. Flair is so fired up here. He is really going for this promo. At one point, even refers to Mike Tanay as Mean Gene, because he's kind of <laughs> getting a bit carried away with himself. Yeah. Arn is, again, as Arn is, cuts, you know, his usual. Everything that comes out of Arn Anson's mouth, Steve I believe is real. You know, I genuinely believe everything this guy says. He is so good. And then we see Sting. Sting arrives trying to convince people that it wasn't him who attacked Luger last Monday night. It was not him. But people aren't really buying into what he's saying. And Sting says, oh, I'll just show you. I'll see you right there or so on. With regards to this as an interview segment, as a storyline segment or storyline stepping stone, and the way it was filmed and and Sting's back to the camera and so on. How do you guys feel this went with regards to the direction we're heading in the the story of the main event match that's upcoming in War Games? Uh, Danny, we'll come to you this was just this needed to happen because it's it's just going on the go home nitro where lex luger gets beaten down you could see he was frustrated in that little interview uh in this interview sorry and he was like he doesn't believe it he's like tell your story walking um sting to me he could have offered a little bit of ex- more of an explanation, but I guess because the horsemen were jumping into when he was trying to talk, it, it would make sense that he would just walk off. But he almost was like, um, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, but, and then just kind of walked off. But obviously we know if, in hindsight because of the what happens in the main event, I thought this was brilliant because it, it just had the fans 
grasping to see what would happen. It would be like, oh, now now it's putting the, it put a question in my head of was that a sting? Now now I have to go back and see. Um, yeah, brilliant little piece of business here. Yeah. Okay. Steve, did you enjoy it? Yeah. Again, all I want is a wrestler, wrestlers, a commentary team, whoever's in front of my screen. Just tell me what's going on, but mm-hmm. do it with some passion. And like you say, the intensity from Ian Anderson and Ric Flair, I was just like, what the hell's going on here? This is quality. I'm not going to lie. I, I found the the acting of Sting coming in and his back to the the camera a bit a bit amateurish and a bit like, yeah, I, I don't really believe any of this. This just seems a bit silly. But overall, it got me hyped for what mm-hmm. I'm about to be watching now. Yeah, okay. And there's a couple of things with regards to the way these things were, were, were done, I suppose, with regards to the main event and the interview segment. The Sting coming in and primarily having his back to the camera was done, according to Eric Bischoff on his podcast and other interviews he's done about this, it was done deliberately. Whereas in, in WWF television, everyone stares at the TVs like sideways on so you can still see their face and all that sort of, that's the way it's produced. In, in WCW, it wasn't always that regimented, but this was done deliberately to be shot from Sting from behind. So they're desperately trying to make it so that you don't have any point of comparison between fake Sting and real Sting, facially uh, or anything too close up. So that was why that was done. And secondly, the way war games normally works and had worked up until this point was that both teams would come to the ring or together, the complete teams would come down and the cage doors are opposite corners of this massive, massive uh, structure across two rings. And you would have the normally the horsemen or the dangerous Alliance or whatever the heel faction was in one corner all of them out there, the managers and, and everyone, the whole team would be there, all four, four or five members. And then the babyface team would be on the opposite side as well. And then when they were sending people in, they wouldn't come down the ramp from the back. They would just be already at ringside and allowed in in their separate intervals. That was changed for this match as well. So you couldn't have fake sting down there in front of the crowd for that long, just stood there so people could get a proper look, I suppose, for want of a better phrase. So it's almost done, or smoke and mirrors, I guess, almost done to try and keep up the pretense that Sting turned on Monday night and you wouldn't get the opportunity to get a proper look at, well, I suppose the real Sting, Steve Borden, or fake Sting, old old Jeffrey Farmer himself. So I can understand why it was done that way. And I think it did, I think it was fairly successful, really. Because when we see fake Sting, I mean, the hair is a little bit different. The height's a little bit different. But he he worked on throwing punches like Sting. He worked on walking and throwing kicks like Sting, mannerisms of Sting. And I think he does a pretty good job. Yeah. You know, now you've explained that to me, so now I completely agree with you because I didn't know. I just felt like that, that Sting um, walking in there with his back to camera was kind of like a rush job or, or something. They were running low on time because of the main event. But now you've explained that to me. Yeah, wow. Massive credit to WCW. Yeah. Yeah, just clever little production touches, I suppose. Yeah. But um, Michael Buffer is taking charge of the ring entrances or in introduction introductions. Sorry, put my teeth in. Bloody hell. And uh, he does it in his usual way with much aplomb and so on. And he runs through the rules of war games and states that only three names have been put forward for the NWO. Uh, 
and the same for WCW. One hang-up I have with this whole story, I appreciate why the NWO has only put three names forward. We get that. that you know, it's the tease of which way is Sting going to go and all that sort of stuff. If you're looking at it from a storyline standpoint, kayfabe and all that, all that stuff, you've apparently got a whole locker room back there of WCW talent that want to kill the NWO. And yet Ric Flair is saying, we're going to go into this, just the three of us against whoever they've got. That doesn't quite make sense. I know because of where they're going and what they want to do, it has to be that way for the reveal of the two stings and so on. But sort of taking a step back and looking at it just from a story cafe viewpoint, you'd imagine other WCW guys would be offering their services. They they wouldn't be short of a fourth guy, I would imagine, would they? No, and especially the four horsemen, uh, Chris Benoit and uh, Mongo offered to step up, didn't they? We didn't see Mongo at all on this show, did we? No, no, I mean in the weeks before. No, no, that's what, yeah, yeah, okay. But I mean, we haven't seen Mongo or Deborah on this show at no. all, have we? No, they, he wasn't there, no. Oh, I wonder where they were. Okay, <laughs> there we go. And so then, War Games usual format a coin toss decides who gets the advantage and the baby faces in the nwa and wcw must be the unluckiest group ever because they never win the fucking coin toss yeah ever. you know what you know what sad? <laughs> you said the same thing exactly to me last year when we covered the uh, war games did i really <laughs> there we go there we go uh, the manager for the four horsemen was the uh, with jj dylan who i mentioned earlier on and he used to do the coin toss live on tv and he would always win the coin toss for the horseman. Uh, he was the luckiest guy ever. I wanted him playing my lottery numbers. But um, <laughs> yes, we start with two guys in the ring. They have a five-minute segment or five-minute uh, uh, sort of mini-match. And then every two minutes after, another guy comes in. The advantage is always with the heels. They always have a man up uh, before everyone is in the ring. The, all, you know, all eight guys from the two teams are there. And then that's when the match beyond begins, as Dusty Rhodes referred to as. And somebody basically has to submit or quit, effectively, for the win. Um, Steve-O, with regards to War Games, the format, the look of it, what did you think? So I'll just run through a, a, a few of my notes uh, regarding yes, Michael do, yes. Buffer. Um, or, or just in general, what I've written for the opening few minutes of this match. And firstly, I found there was just too many fireworks for the lowering of the cage. I just was like, this is just absolutely ludicrous. Do we need oh, this? A, that was a proper old school NWA thing. They loved that. Okay. They they really like this is a to them. This was like a huge deal. And I think part of that comes down to Dusty Rhodes, who was booking Jim Crockett Promotions back in the day, and he had a big part in the invention of war games and he used to he used to love putting putting over his own ideas let's put it that way okay. but yeah i, I agree it, it was pretty spectacular and maybe a bit over the top wasn't it <laughs> yeah over the top the, the, the correct terminology um i've got one for dan griffin here uh, michael buffer um he says i have the rules and he's got more notes on the rules than dan griffin makes for a podcast it was i just looked at thought this is just a joke isn't it like this guy is, is supposed to be reading some rules out and it was just page after page after yeah. page and even i listening in was just like what the fuck is going on i literally have no idea what it was meaning <laughs> about one person comes in and then we have to wait for this person for the next person and then uh, we can only quit just like 
I, I don't get this at all. This is just really confusing me. Um, this is going to show how naive I am. Um, I genuinely never knew Triple H was mocking Michael Buffer when it comes to the millions and millions of people around the world. I've never known okay. that until watching this. Would you believe? Right. Um, I, I found the again. I think you've mentioned this a thousand times, but the audio for this paper specifically now was pretty poor you can barely hear the crowd i don't know if that's like a deliberate thing oh, wcw, WCW were doing thing. but they never they never quite get it right you think when um say for example you've got somebody making an entrance that there's almost let me think four i think signed tracks i guess to this you have the ring announcer you have the entrance music uh, you have the crowd reaction, and then you would also, uh, on occasions, have the commentators. Yes. My WWE, their production levels and production qualities have always been fantastic. I mean, to a point now where it's overproduced, but they've always got stuff, the, the, the simple stuff they've always managed to get right. You can hear the music. You can hear the ring announcer. The crowd reactions are, are there. And then if the commentators talk, you can hear them clearly as well. WCW right the way back into the 80s, right the way into 2001 when they got a business, never seemed to get it completely right. Sometimes you can't hear the music properly. Sometimes, and, and this part may be because of the, the overdubs on the network, sometimes the music means you can't hear the crowd reaction. Sometimes you can't hear the ring announcer whatsoever, which tickles us on previous episodes of Nitro Nights because you have Michael Buffer there getting paid, what was it, Danny, $30,000 a show or something like that? Fifty. $50,000 a show. And then Tony Schiavone will talk over the top of him. So you can't hear him anyway. <laughs> you know, but they it's, never it's, get it right, Steve No, it's the same thing with AEW right now. I mean, they're not getting their um, all four um, parts of the uh, audio right either. Mm. Yeah, maybe on that aspect, we're a bit spoiled with how WWE do it. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry, Steve carry on. No, no, no. And, and then the, 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 the other note for the, the, just the entrance and the build up to this match, I've got here that I. I've heard the episode now, but I generally never knew Ted DiBiase was part of the NWO, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. I think he's absolutely outstanding being part of the NWO. He just comes across as the perfect heel manager. It's it's clever, I think, because I mean it, it all it all happens quite quickly, but they talk about a financial benefactor, but never name him. Uh, they make reference to um, billionaire Ted. Now, we all assume that, meaning Ted Turner, the owner of WCW, but obviously Ted DiBiase was the million-dollar man. Here he's billionaire Ted, whatever. And you think as well to those famous skits, the vignettes, the video packages, uh, that the following has been paid for by the New World Order. So they're always saying that somebody is bankrolling them without actually saying somebody is bankrolling us. And then the guy who was the million-dollar man turns up and it's never actually said outright, to my knowledge. But it's it's pretty clever in the way that they openly hint to, yeah, this guy's the million-dollar man from the WWF. He's paying for this shit. You know, I think that's quite quite a clever little story point, really. Yeah, and, and then, like I say, I buy into it. I, 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 I'm drawn into the fact that, you know, he's, he's one of the, uh, the the manager of, of one of the biggest heel factions ever. And, uh, I mean, as the, the, the you know, the match... It, the start of the match for me, I was just like, I just want to see how this plays out. I just want to see how this plays out two rings, one giant cage. And just hopefully it's not a clusterfuck basically. Mm. 
Okay. Um, so, I mean, you said earlier on when I asked about war games in general, you've not seen many war games matches or know much of them this aside. So, I'll be honest now, with regards to the story this match tells and where it goes with Sting and so on, it's, it's, it's fantastic. With regards to it being a wrestling contest and a war games match, it's not very good. Yeah, and, and do you know what? You've pretty much summed up my thought process regarding this whole thing because I the only war games match I've seen off the top of my head is probably the the first other one in NXT and then also okay. the one with um I apologize the Dangerous Alliance the famous yes. one um, versus that's it yeah. yeah and it's and I think that was because of chain wrestling actually mm-hmm. but either way um, I have completely lost my trend oh yeah that's right for me i didn't really give a shit about the match itself like what would happen in ring i just was so mesmerized by the story that was being told not only by the in ring but again by the commentary team and how invested they were in the match and i really really enjoyed it i mean i'm sure i know we'll get to it um shortly but the whole thing about Sting and everything coming in and the fake Sting and everything, I just found absolutely fascinating. Mm. I think the the emotion shown by the commentators is what sells a great deal of it. And we'll get to a few points of that in a moment. But Bobby Heenan, for me, I always find his performances with anything to do with the NWO and Hogan really help get the angle over because he is genuinely fearful or comes across that way, is generally fearful of these guys. He has genuine hatred for these guys. And I think his performances are fantastic in anything NWO-orientated. Heenan himself, however, interestingly, with how good he comes across on screen, says he really struggled in this role at times because he's always been the heel commentator. He was always the bad guy commentator rooting for the, the bad guy wrestlers. And the NWO are supposed to be the bad guys. He is supposed to be the bad guy commentator. But he's WCW, so he's supposed to be cheering on the good guys against the bad guys whilst being the bad guy himself. And he said that they, the sort of psychology behind his own performance in these like shoot YouTube interviews he you can get online and all that sort of stuff, he says he struggled with the psychology of that himself. But I don't pick up on any struggle. I think he's I think he does really really well. Yeah. He really does. I mean, we've put over him uh, as we've seen the NWO storyline continue and start. He has been a massive MVP of the entire thing because he is the voice of the fans, to be honest with you. He's like, oh, anything could happen. He's very parrot. He's very jumpy on every Nitro, every pay-per-view we've watched since the NWO have come in. He's not him. He's, he's not his usual sarcastic self. I mean, he is on everything else, but not when it comes to the NWO and Hulk Hogan. Mm. And he has been, him and Mean Gene are two massive, massive um, parts of this storyline that don't really get talked about. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, so then, Danny, we've asked steve what are your thoughts then on this match itself? I mean, it goes 18-ish minutes, which is pretty short for a War Games match, to be fair. I would imagine it's I mean, I've not looked it up. I mean, you know, very, you know, crazy level of unprofessionalism on my part there. I've not looked it up, but it is. I would imagine it's one of the shortest war games matches that has, that has happened. 
And you've seen previous War Games matches yourself with Nitro Knights and with other um, projects and, and general watchbacks. Where does this stand with regards to your thoughts on the War Games sort of concept as a match before we get into the storyline aspect of what, of what happens? As a match, I really enjoyed the first five minutes where we got to see Arn Anderson and Scott Hall because I feel like that is sort of like a dream match. I don't know if that was the first ever time they wrestled, but they, they had looked like they'd been wrestling for years with each other. Um, I think that, that was a very good way to start a War Games match because um, could, I mean, yeah, this time you could actually say that um, both of these guys were the workhorses of, this, of their, of their um, respective teams. And so it was very smart of them to do that. After that, I felt myself um, more anticipating what's going to happen with Sting, what, who's going to run out, um, who is the fourth man of the NW, who's the fourth man of WCW. So it was kind of like, uh, it was, didn't ruin it, but it was like I was very distracted during it um, rather than wanting to see a conclusion or more wrestling action. I wanted to see what was going to happen. Mm, yeah okay I, I think you're onto something there i, I kind of got that vibe as well and, and is that something that you picked up as well steve it almost feels like the match begins and it's, it is very exciting and the crowd reaction for our anderson is superb they, they love this guy in north carolina but after that initial excitement of the cage and the, the match starting i I almost put out a vibe of i'm waiting mm. for the end as opposed to what enjoying what I was watching, is that something that you got yourself, Steve? Or was it uh, was Again, there a bit more to it? As an individual who had no no context whatsoever coming into this, other than the video packages that were put together, mm-hmm. um, as they say on a book of the territory, we seem to be more interested in the story than we are the actual wrestling itself. The storyline's more important than the wrestling, and me personally, that's what i prefer so long as the commentary team are invested in what's going on and telling me in the most patronizing way what this is meaning from a storyline point of view Mm -hmm. and the the passion that they're showing regarding what is actually happening in the ring and the consequences of what could happen to the individual wrestlers and stuff. That's all I care about. Um, you are right. The match is very, very short. Um, I mean, I've got written down here about the, the whole thing about, um, the, the, the fact that this fake sting comes out. Even I thought it was sting because they look like they are identical. The only difference is that the fake sting is slightly bigger in physique than the real sting. That's it. Mm facially they look the same um move set they he's got it nailed i think i think he's a bit shorter as well okay okay either way i was like what the fuck is going on here yeah um i also found the match to be honest very claustrophobic um there was just so much going on in such a small tight space that even me watching i'm just like please just spread out for christ's sake like yeah because because the camera work as well is so in their faces Mm. that there's not enough space in there for me to absorb what the hell was going on um but like you say from my personal perspective hearing a story being told while that while there's a load of wrestlers performing the actions of what the, the storyteller is selling I, I i absolutely loved it especially when it all ended the, the aftermath is oh it's superb 
Yes, indeed. Uh, a few points. I mean, there's not many really to cover, I guess. But um, Arn Anderson and Scott Hall start the match, as 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 we've all said. I I love. I mean, I'm a big Arn Anderson mark. I, I buy everything this guy's putting down. He is superb, and I loved his reaction to the crowd as well. Because Arn isn't used to getting a babyface reaction at this point in his career, and the way he sort of tries to get the crowd cheering for him even more. Uh, he and Hall do do. Gr- I mean, I was a bit disappointed we didn't get the horseman entrance music and the nwo entrance music that was a bit of a mm. diner but that's only a small thing um nash is in next and almost breaks into a sprint which is probably the first and last time i've seen kevin nash do that i've written down yeah. here kevin nash can run yeah I mean, i'm amazed <laughs> he didn't blow a knee out doing that to be fair um <laughs> nash comes in and then luger arrives and it all becomes i suppose a phrase that we use quite a bit on this show is, is punchy kicky bullshit that's kind of the way it goes. And there are aspects of it, I think, as well, that almost lend itself to almost like a battle royal or a war rumble-esque, where there's bodies in the ring and you can't... You look at other war games matches, there are certain spots that they are working in and people get out of the way for it. And even though, you know, some of them... I mean, that, that one in 92 that you mentioned, Steve, that was five on five. That didn't feel as claustrophobic as this one because of the way it was laid out and, and so on here, they didn't really feel like there was major spots they were holding out for or building towards it. Just very much almost Royal Rumble esque with everyone kind of just punching and kicking and, and so on. Um, Hogan comes into a very loud, but also mixed reaction. We're getting NWO cheers here in horseman country, as well as, you know, lots of four horseman t-shirts and, and booze ringing in as well. Huge, we want Flair chance. Then the crowd now they they are screaming for Ric Flair. Flair arrives, and in, in typical Ric Flair four horseman fashion, dirtiest player in the game, as as we know, he's got a set of um, well brass knucks, I suppose is the wrestling term that he's sneaked into the cage and he starts throwing punches with that, and he low blows everybody, which t- tickled me. I thought that was funny, um, and then we get fake sting. And I thought Tony Schiavone here was fantastic because they're asking who's next, who's next, who's the next guy, who's the fourth guy. Sting comes out and Tony Schiavone, all he says is it's Sting. But his tone of voice sells it for me. He sounds genuinely gutted, genuinely heartbroken that it is in his mind at this moment. It's actually Sting joining the NWO. He sounds devastated. He sounds genuinely upset. And Jeffrey Farmer, as as you said, Steve, he's got it down to a T, hasn't he? The way he throws punches, the way he does those kind of backhanded punches that Sting does. He's got the, the big screaming woos out to the crowd and the, the mannerisms. He does it really, really well. But well, then well, the I crowd... Bought, I, sorry, go on, Steve. Well, I bought it because when the, the real Sting came out, I've written down, what, there's two Stings? <laughs> yes. So I bought it. I was worked. Uh... The crowd at this point have kind of twigged, I think. Well, some of them, because we do get a small We Want Sting chant then. So I see some of them have twigged on to this being um, Mr. Farmer and not Mr. Borden. Before eventually we do get Sting and he cleans house. He comes in and he, he batters absolutely everybody, turns to Lex Luger and says, was that good enough for you? Gives him the old up yours, tells him to stick it. And walks out. And everyone now is super gutted because they realize they've made a mistake. They've pissed on 
stings cornflakes. He's upset of everybody, and he's he's leaving. This very then very quickly then turns into the finish, where fake Sting applies the Scorpion on Luger. Hogan then adds a a front face lock to that as well, which I thought was a nice touch. Before uh, Luger gives up, and whilst this is going on, Kevin Nash is trying to climb from one ring into the other and gets his foot tangled up cool in with the, the cameraman. In the cameraman's, <laughs> yeah, that is that is superb. That is just absolutely brilliant. And Tony Schiavone, after the finish, is again. His tone of voice is disappointment. His is almost heartbreak. He's trying to portray here. Mm. He basically just says, "We should have trusted Sting. Why didn't we trust Sting? We should have trusted Sting." It's absolutely superb. I think the storytelling aspect of this is done so well. Um, gentlemen, we'll come to the aftermath in a moment. But with regards to how that was structured, the order people entered in sting beating up fake sting and then fake sting himself being involved in the finish what what are your thoughts in general with regards to the wrestling part of this bell to bell before we get into the aftermath uh steve we'll, we'll come to you i'm not gonna lie the the actual in-ring action was pretty shit i, I didn't really care for it i wasn't really thinking it, it's exactly what you said it's just a lot mm-hmm. of kicky punchy bullshit i, I didn't really I was just so interested in the storyline itself. And to be completely honest, it was the ending, which just blew me away. What was going on? And I, I, I absolutely think this whole segment with the spray paint and the Miss Elizabeth coming out, albeit one of the worst actresses I've ever seen, but <laughs> in the words of Booker T, Oh my goodness. It was just magnificent watching what the nwo were doing to randy savage um i i genuinely the thing is is that i'd completely you know they're doing a good job telling a story when you've completely forgotten the match has even happened Ah, and it's really getting across the nwo as proper heels and it for me really drew me in at this point it really grabbed my attention what was going on and the and the crowd are throwing in the coke bottles and the the, the cups and the shirts oh, it is it is fucking amazing i love it and there was a bit here where it's ridiculous and and rob if you're listening in there's a simpsons joke here where where lex luger is slowly crawling isn't he out of the ring and it reminds me of the scene in the simpsons where um lisa's looking at a german uh, crash test dummy segment for a science fair and the car crashes into a wall and one of the dummies falls out and you all just think it's just a dummy and then slowly it crawls away and she just goes (laughs) wait a minute that that one's alive that's how lex luger was crawling it was it was ludicrous Mm. but everything i'm sure you're about to talk about is incredible the aftermath of this match because i just think this whole story it 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 grabbed me mate it was brilliant danny what about yourself with regards to fake sting coming in and then real sting what were your thoughts there but before we sort of dive into the whole miss elizabeth and uh some pretty gross spitting action but we'll cover that in a moment <laughs> <laughs> well honestly this was just perfectly written out i think something that will get overlooked by this and probably has been overlooked um is the fact that it was lex luger that tapped well that submitted um 
it was somebody who was recruited by the four horsemen it wasn't a four horsemen who Ah. submitted so i found that very interesting could that be leading somewhere um I also like the commitment of Jeff Farmer, as you, both of you said. I mean, the level he went to, I found his punches, kicks, and also the Scorpion um, splash in the corner, the Stinger splash, that yep. was really, really cool as well. But the moment for me for this whole thing was when the two Stings are facing each other. I think I sent the picture to you, sir, where you see Nick Patrick in the middle of the two Stings, and he's got a look on his uh, a horrified look on his face as if he's walked <laughs> into some time portal. Um, and it's just brilliant. Yeah. Um, the finish. Yeah. That's, that's what will stick with me is that it was Lex Luger, the one that the horseman put their trust in the man that promised that they, he would get the job done along with sting. These two have kind of just let the horseman down and WCW down. Mm. This is true. This is true. Um, we do get a lot of afters, don't we? Uh, there's a there's a beat down of all the uh, guys. The cage is going back up. Luger, uh, as Steve mentioned, is is trying to crawl away whilst yelling "Stinger, Stinger" down the aisle way there, like he's you know yearning for some long lost lover or something. I don't know. And um, the fight continues on the outside. Randy Savage comes out of literally nowhere. He's not come from the back. I don't know where this guy's emerged from. I don't know if he's off getting a hot dog from a merch stand or something, and he's twigged to there's something going on. I'm not sure. But he appears from like the wrong direction somehow. Gets involved in the fight. Uh, then the giant arrives. But Savage is following Hogan into the ring because he's desperate to get his hands on Hogan. And again, we're already building towards Halloween Havoc, of course. And Savage is, for the second time in the space of a couple of hours, so you know determined and has his eyes locked on hogan he's oblivious to everything else that's going on around him and he gets jumped by somebody else the giants then choke slams him miss elizabeth arrives and tries to cover savage up as they're beating him i want to spray paint him Uh, she gets spray painted herself nwo and a few other lines on the back of her dress and then she gets spat on which was a bit a bit grim i'm not a big fan of that i'm not gonna lie hogan also spits on a camera which again is a pretty damn grim but i suppose they're they're getting the reaction that they they want it's not you know pleasant behavior from people they want to be deemed as unpleasant people i suppose yeah. um i think there's timing issues at this stage because the the pay-per-view matches it looks like a ran short i mean i, I know listen again listening to tony shivani and eric bischoff on their podcasts this pay-per-view they had a lot of time left on the end of the program with regards to the pay-per-view time they had scheduled. So this is why we could then get the NWO beat down carrying on for as long as it does before they go up to the announce desk. Now the announce desk moment was completely ad-libbed. That wasn't planned. They were just told do something. We're still on the air. So they went out and that's when you see Bobby Heenan, <laughs> Scarper in probably the quickest turn of pace Bobby Heenan's ever displayed. Everyone else leaves. I like the interaction between Hogan and Dusty Rhodes as well. Whilst Hogan's holding a sign that says this is NWO country, they get their microphone and they, they run their mouths a little bit. And the show goes off the air with the NWO posing to the camera with a sign saying this is NWO country. And that's kind of the end of the pay per view. So this segment from the final bell to the end of the show steve you said you adored this what are your thoughts on regards to miss elizabeth's involvement spray painting liz while she's on the deck and also then spitting on her i don't have a problem with any of it 
I just want to buy into the fact that these are absolute bastards. Yeah. And they're doing the job. Uh, I, I compare this to when I always compare it because we all got our different eras and my era is the year 2000. And it's the moment when McMahon turns on the rock at WrestleMania 2000 and everybody is genuinely like you fucking asshole. And they just get <laughs> bottled and bottled and bottled. Yep. It is a magnificent scene. It's, it's pretty much identical, but not nowhere near as iconic, obviously, as the bash at the beach moment. But it's virtually the same because people never saw it coming. And it was just like the, the, the imagery of the amount of um, Coca-Cola that's thrown in and everything and the various wrestlers getting smashed with drink is just magnificent and the and the fact that you've just said that all of this segment was ablipped says it all because a lot of this is kind of reminding me of in the 2011 era with the CM Punk stuff specifically mm-hmm. not with John Cena but specifically with Triple H and you can kind of tell I do a, I do a podcast where I go into proper in depth about my opinions on what was kind of scripted and what's not scripted and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of moments where um, you can tell that Triple H and CM Punk have gone. I don't like you. You don't like me, but this is going to make money. So we're just going right. to be allowed to say whatever we want on air. We've got this bit, which will script. We've got this bit that will script, but this middle bit it's all going to be ablipped. I could be completely wrong, but me watching it as a mark, I buy into it. And from what okay. I can tell with the facial reactions of Triple H and CM Punk, it's a case of you cheeky bastard. I wasn't expecting that. I'm going to give you this then. <laughs> and and it, it continues for about 15 minutes. It's, it's fantastic. In this segment here, seeing the way the NWO are acting like a bit, it kind of reminds me of Triple H and Shawn Michaels with DX. It was just kind of like just two kids uh, away <laughs> yes. from their mum and dad. And they're just told just act like dickheads. And they just acted literally like themselves, like two mm. complete tossers off the red on whatever drink and drugs or whatever they were taking. And I don't know if you noticed this, but in the background, Hulk Hogan is, uh, is, is holding up a swash sticker poster. Did you see that? I, I did not. I, I saw him holding up a sign. I, so, it was just, I, I thought it was the NWO sign that he brings over to the announce desk. No. So in the ring, before they come over to the announce desk, mm. they're all holding up posters. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to look back at it again, but it is quite clearly I, very, very um, close to what the swash sticker is. And I just thought okay. that is there it is there right there i'm looking at it it's at the two hour and 39 minute and 32 second mark and it appears that hulk hogan is holding up a swash sticker sign why i've no i've not noticed that and i've not heard that before so and in fact i'm going to keep that up and i'm going to i'm going to send you the picture because i could be completely wrong but Mm. it's right there and i just thought that really does show the kind of heels that they were wow and I, I personally buy into all of this. The fact that I wanted to watch the Nitro the following day and the fact mm. that I've been watching WCW since for NWO pretty much tells me that they've they've worked me. And this is 1996, so yep. I thought it's magnificent, Si. Fantastic storytelling, isn't it? Yeah. Danny, your good self then. Someone who admitted as well that you were worked, thought that Sting yeah. 
uh, you know, obviously not having not seen the product at all beforehand, you thought that Sting had in fact turned and joined the NWO with your first watch back of this this time frame. How did you take in the end of the match, the aftermath, the stuff of Liz and, and the stuff of the announce desk, I guess? It all came off very, very real. And for the third straight pay-per-view, the NWO have uh, have left us standing tall. And it's like they are building up their, their sort of like portfolio where they are not going to be like, they are here to destroy WCW and it's really showing on the TVs and it's really, really showing on the pay-per-views because they're ending them with the baby faces um, getting destroyed or getting defeated. And then the NWL just cheering and, and being like just their natural selves. And, and I think it's, yeah, it's just so interesting to see how this is going. Mm, yeah. Great stuff. I agree. I agree. I loved it. I loved it. The match itself, being a big NWA fan and and all the old school Jim Crockett stuff and and so on, big Horseman Mark and all that, the the War Games match itself didn't do it for me. There's been many better, but from a story viewpoint, I I think this is as close to perfect as you can get. It was so good, and not just this, the the previous Nitro with the Sting turn and so on. And obviously, I know roughly where we head now for the next. 12 to 14 months with the sting character so it's it's the beginning of something really really special but that is in the future we now come to our i suppose uh, overall ratings of this show in our usual manner we have our plus points and our negatives our highlight and our low point our woos and our oh brothers brother 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 brothers brother brother danny we'll come to you first my friend Yep. So the highlight, the woo, is definitely has to be the Sting and the whole main event. But the moment where Sting ran out and we got the face off between the two Stings, that had me just, yeah, that would be my woo, definitely, mate. Okay. Uh, Steve uh, It's just literally what we've just discussed now. Uh, my woo moment was the ending. I bought yes. into all of it. I thought it was absolutely magnificent. This, this is the kind of stuff which I tell the likes of. I mean, you think I'm a casual fan. The people like my brother and my close friend Dale, they're casual, casual, casual fans. And this is something that I would go that I have literally told them: you have to, you have to watch this stuff. You have okay. to. Because from a history standpoint, it's just fascinating. And mm. yeah, certainly the ending for me was um, the, the, the highlight of this pay-per-view. Yeah, for, for me too. It's, it's a bit of a clean sweep, really, with regards to our woos for this week. Uh, the, the main event angle, uh, the story as opposed to the match, uh, the Sting stuff and the NWO stuff, the whole, yeah, all of that. Um, your big negative for this this particular pay-per-view, your old brothers. Uh, Steve-O, we'll start with you. I've got to go back to my notes. Um, is it Ice Train? That's right, yes. The, the Ice Train match, just... just Considering considering all the matches that have been on tonight with all the high-flying stuff and then obviously this massive storyline revolving around the NWO, that could have just been put on a house show, really. Yeah. It was... The fact that you on this podcast have said... I don't even know why it was a submission match. And even Dustin Rhodes at the time literally saying, why is this a submission match? I think pretty much says it all, to be honest with you. Mm. 
yeah there we go Danny your your old brother it was going to be that last train Scott Norwood match but I'm thinking how better would this pay-per-view have been especially that uh, pre-match interview if Mean Gene was there because okay. Mean Gene was has been as I was saying I mean I'll say it to Luke Howes come on he's been a giant part of the NWO storyline and I mean he he's involved with this um Nick Patrick business and everything like that. So when you just plop um, Mike Tanay in there, it, it it doesn't feel. I mean, Ric Flair himself even called uh, Mike Tanay mean gene. It yeah. feels like he's irreplaceable as the backstage announcer of WCW at this moment because he's been such a. I mean, just look at the um, Bash of the Beach segments he was having, um, where uh, he was dropping hints that oh that voice sounds familiar. I think they needed him for this pay-per-view and him not being here just it just took away from the event. Interesting. Well, that's a really good point. I didn't even think of that. You look at the big historic moments with the NWO, it is always Gene holding the microphone. So yeah, mm. good shame. Good shame. Uh, mine is the same as Steve-O's though. Uh, Ice Train, Scott Norton, stank the place up. Don't want to see it again. Thank you very much. Overall then, gentlemen, before we depart, hit, miss or middling, what are we going for? Steve-O. A big hit. Danny? Massive hit, mate. It's a hit from me too, boys. It's a clean sweep. They're they're doing some good stuff in 96. Uh, Brilliant. Awesome. Can't wait to see where we go in the coming weeks. Before we leave then, we need to let everybody know whereabouts we can find each other and everyone else online with regards to the content people are involved in. Uh, We'll come to you first, Steve-O. I want to say very quickly, thank you so much for joining us, taking the time to watch this pay-per-view, to talk through what you've seen. And I love the fact that you're kind of hooked on the new world order now. It's brilliant stuff. But where can we find your good self online and all the brilliant shows that you are involved in? Uh, essentially, it's just anything that I do is at Total Steve. You can find me on Twitter. Um, I just basically put clips up of the office extras, the bill, um, any wrestling that I'm watching, I will happily clip and put a thing up. But yeah, if you want to follow me on that, you can do all that. And um, of course, with my podcast, have a guess. Total Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Where I'm looking through the chronological order of 2011. We are up to the episode that I'm releasing today. Is It doesn't really matter because it'll be so outdated. But by the time this comes out, it will be all this CM Punk, Triple H, Kevin Nash. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, all that nonsense. So, yeah, Does by the run? time that's released, if you want to hear all about the CM Punk, Triple H stuff, uh, check out the Total Steve. Uh, more importantly, if you're a fan of fantasy football, uh, my friend, uh, me and Jason, do um, essentially live reactions to what's going on in the world of fantasy football regarding the football matches, and that's all at Elite FPL. Definitely worth checking out. I enjoy the podcasts. I've enjoyed it when we've had conversations on there. And I, I sort of dip my toe into the world of fantasy football. I'm not very good, but I enjoy it. We've got our own little tiny mini league with Dan Griffin and my daughter's involved as well. And my, my daughter is loving it because there's only five of us in this tiny little mini league and she's third. So the fact that she's above two people who um, are grown-ups and one of them used to have a football podcast. Our Livy is buzzing and she she's like 120 points clear of the team of the person below her. If that if that lead of like 120 or whatever gets chipped away at down to even something like 116, 
she starts panicking, gets her phone out, and starts analysing her transfers. <laughs> she she loves it, mate. Yeah, so yeah, you, great stuff. The, in fact, for anybody listening into this, I probably spend more time on the live streams talking about chain wrestling, Nitro Nights, and basically anything to do with um, wrestling more than I do fantasy football. To be honest with you, I think I was doing <laughs> that when you joined um, the other day. So yeah, it's all a bit of fun. Yeah, it's great stuff. It's great stuff. Danny, my friend. Where can people find you online and the great shows you're involved in? Yep, you can follow me on Twitter at Scottish Juggalo. You can hear me on One Man's Meat Podcast with the great Chris Bellis. You can hear me on Back When with the great Ty Peters. And you can hear me here next week where we'll be looking at the fallout from Fall Brawl with the great Cy Powell. Oh, well, you're very kind. You need to stop all that. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know it makes me cringe, and that's why you do it. <laughs> Anything I am involved in, you can find via the network that carries this show. And that's at SJP World Media on Facebook and Twitter and all your podcast players, platforms, and providers. And on that network, we have uh, shows looking at Doctor Who. We have The Waiting Room looking at Quantum Leap. We have people looking at modern-day WWE. They watch, so you don't have to, with regards to Benny Mac, Tyler Peters. And then in the States, we have the awesome trio from Ohio, uh, from regularly scheduled hostilities, looking at the modern-day product as well um if nostalgia is more your thing as i said you've got nitro nights here we've got various other shows looking at old tv as well um and also chain wrestling of course live on a monday night on youtube twitch uh the, the sjp world media facebook group and so on and out as a podcast later in the week but most importantly you can find and follow this show on facebook and twitter as at nitro underscore nights it's at nitro underscore nights I'm looking forward to next week already. It's going to be a blast. Steve-O, once again, thank you so, so much for joining us, taking the time to uh, watch the pay-per-view, sit down and discuss it and so on. It's been awesome. Thank you so much, my friend. Yeah, thank you, mate. No, no, thank you for the invite. Uh, Danny, I'll speak to you next week. Take care, mate. And to everyone else, as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>